Hello again, friends! And you are our friends, and welcome back to another edition of Jim Cornette's Drive-Thru right here on another summer's day. It's hot in some places. We hope everyone in the uh, South and in Florida is okay. But we're going to have fun today here on the show. I'm your host, the great Brian Last, and here he is, the star, the man who's promised to have lots of fun today, Mr. Jim Cornette. Does, does that count for me, the people in the South? Does that, because I'm kind of, Kentucky, some people claim it's Southern, some people claim it's Midwest. What? We didn't, we didn't have a hurricane. Yeah, because Kentucky, in, in a civil war, we didn't secede. Uh, it was the the boundary was below us. We're you know we're we're in that some people try to claim Louisville at least as a as a part of the Midwest. What do you? So think? I want to. I want to. Uh, I think we're Southern. Is West Virginia but, part of the Northeast? West Virginia is not part of anything. But, <laughs> but I I would like to think that you included. Uh, we've had nice weather. Thank you very much, Florida, for taking up all the oxygen in the atmosphere with the hurricanes. So we've had some nice weather for once here over the past six months or so. But thank you for asking, Brian. Thank you for your well wishes. I've had a nice week. Oh. Except what? for the watching of the wrestling and and actually some of the talking of the wrestling. I've had a nice week. I've mentioned last... Um, what was the last show we did? When what did we ever stop doing that show? The experience. Yes, that's what it was. Boy, sure it it sure was. Um I mentioned it was Stacy's birthday this past week on the 29th and her mom's in from California been visiting. We I I ventured out in public again. I can say this now that it's over with. I didn't want to cram the city streets of Louisville with onlookers and curiosity seekers and autograph hounds. But we went down to Brendan's, our favorite restaurant, down on 4th Street again. Oh! The filet mignon only surpassed possibly by the perfectly seared giant sea scallops. And, and we're talking the homemade mac and cheese, the herb-roasted potatoes, the incredible appetizers they got, all kinds of the... the Deep fried, cheesy stuffed mushrooms. Jesus. You can just, it's like a tennis ball. You can just take it and just smash it on your face. And you get the cheese drips all over you. What are you saying, Jesus? If this was some gourmet dining here, I'll have you know there, Buster Brown. What are your Buster Brown? Buster what are Brown, your as, as my grandpa <laughs> used to say. What are your thoughts on mixing seafood with meat? Like a surf and turf kind of meal. I mean, here you have scallops. I'm, I'm and firmly in favor of it. You you can't hardly not do that. Or did I just double negative that all to shit? That was a very you, confusing sentence. You, you can't. Well, <laughs> goddamn! I'll have you know that I'm a. I can't a hardly confusing not. man. You can't. You can't hardly <laughs> not do that, can you? Of course, everybody knows that. <laughs> what I'm trying to explain to you. Oh goddamn it! We started already. What I'm trying to explain to you, you got to have the surf with the turf. You can't just surf. You got to get back on dry land at some point. And that and 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 down here at this fine dining establishment I was telling you about, Brendan's on 4th Street in Louisville. Take a credit app if you go to have dinner, but it'll be the best food you ever ate. If you get a steak, you can add on the skewer of shrimp or fried shrimp or the incredible uh 
scallops or a variety of other things, the Bernays sauce. So you kind of, you get the steak and then you add that. They got specialties too. You know, they're not even paying for this. I paid them for the meal. I'm just trying to tell you how nice it was. We went there for Stacy's birthday, had a nice time there. And I was out in public again, I'll have you know. And also, little Harley Quinn is feeling better every day from her recent illness. And, and as I mentioned to you right before we began recording, she just chowed down on a couple of carrots for her uh, midday snack and had a big old gulp of water and is, is currently laying there by the uh, sliding door looking out at the sun and the birds. So she's perky too. Everybody's perfect, because this is Labor Day weekend, Brian, coming up. I don't know, when is this show going to be out? What? I know some. I know we're in, coming up on Labor Day weekend because of the landmark event coming up on Saturday, but I'm not sure what day this particularly is as we sit here, but Labor Day weekend is this weekend as we are recording this, and of course, Labor Day is the greatest holiday in the United States. It's the day that nobody works. Why did they do that? Okay, shouldn't Who's they have they? taken? Well, whoever they is that does the holidays, who's in charge of that now? Now or when they first instituted Labor Day? Well, I guess with the the, culpa, the culpable culprits would have been whoever when they instituted Labor Day. Why did they make it Labor Day if nobody works? Why didn't they make it Off Day? Lazy Day. Why does it have to be led that? It, by naming it Labor Day, one would think that you would be required or somewhat morally responsible to do some work on Labor Day. It's a big holiday everybody's celebrating, so you should do some labor. If they'd have said... For yourself or for the day. government? Like national service? What are you saying? Well, I know. Just do some work. Goddamn, break a fucking sweat once in a while, lazy bastards. But... By the way, I'll be working on Labor Day. <laughs> well, I will be too. <laughs> I've worked every Labor Day since I've been a fucking adult. But most people don't. That's what the the conundrum is about the name of the day. I think and parades it, suck. What do you think? It, well, it depends on what what is the parade for and who's in the parade. What does the parade consist of? Just the idea of a parade, just standing on the side of the road waiting for this thing to pass you by. Like, it's one thing watching the Macy's parade on TV with the kids. But other than oh, that... I, there's no value to the parade for me. When I was a kid, I didn't even want to watch the fucking parade. My mom took me to the Pegasus Parade here in Louisville. I think one derby. And I was like, eh. If it's a bunch of naked strippers walking down the street in a parade formation, I'll watch that. Well, they do that in Coney Island. But other than that, what do you think? Well, then, okay. Then let's say that, for example, they're carrying the coffin filled with the remains of shit stain. And everybody's having a party like one of those New Orleans things where they're blowing horns and dancing about and was that a parade or a funeral procession or it'd be a parade for me would you be having a horn and a hat and oh dancing? i'd be horny all right <laughs> what? i've been waiting for that for a long time well I'd be, sounds like a different I'd kind of parade just, i'd be standing right up straight and proud at the at the occasion all right well so i don't know oh but i know what i was going to talk about thank god well, you see, you keep taking me down these highways and byways. Um, of course, Monday is technically Labor Day, but the big red letter day that everybody's been waiting for is Saturday, September 2nd, because that 
Day of all days is the day we've been talking about for about a month now, the day that I've been waiting on for over two years now, the debut of the biggest, the greatest collectible project ever undertaken by Cornette's Collectibles, the Midnight Express 40th Anniversary Action Figure Set for the first and last time ever. All four of us get action figures in a set, a display box nonetheless, heavily illustrated with beautiful full-color photographs. And as I've mentioned and ad nauseum over the last several weeks, we got 2,000 of these made. It's a project. It's exclusive to jimcornette.com through Figures Toy Company, my fine friends down there. And we got 2,000 of these sets made. And these are it. As far as four packs go, we're not going to remake this or do any more four packs of the Midnight Express. This is one collector's edition in celebration of our 40th anniversary that I probably, I might live long enough to do this again, but I don't think I've got the goddamn energy. The, the, the planning and preparation and nail biting and expense that went into this thing um, the collector's package comes with a brand new, not sold separately anywhere else, 28-page full-color book of the Midnight Express's milestones, all the way from our birthdays to our greatest triumphs and also some of our contract disputes and behind-the-scenes, blah, blah, blah. But big gates and crowds, all that great information, as well as a an 8 by 10 autograph picture of myself, it's a reunion picture of all four of us signed by Dennis Condry and Stan Lane and personalized to your specifications by myself and a certificate of authenticity indicating that all the autographs are genuine and this is one of the limited edition 2000 collector's sets. And we got a hundred that you can get Bobby's autograph on a picture also for a slightly nominal raised fee. And as I mentioned also, and everybody's excited about it and getting ready for it, and the midnight, I'm talking Dennis, Stan, and Bobby's kids and grandkids, including the ones not born yet, we're beaming, we're beaming the news into the embryo, courtesy of the podcast. But they are, uh, they are anxiously awaiting this because all the proceeds... Uh, are split evenly amongst the members of the Midnight Express. We're taking the middleman out so that the talent, for once in their life, actually gets some of the money from the merchandise. Because well, uh, it's, yeah. well, <laughs> well, plus the well, kids can now have finally beautiful Bobby turn on Jim Cornette and team up with He Man. Hey, now there's a team: beautiful Bobby and He Man. Come on, against he Jim Cornette and Skeletor. For, he wouldn't turn on me for He Man. Maybe those Viking figures that I was telling you about that I used to have as the heels that wrestled the goddamn G.I. Joe with the Kung Fu grip before we had wrestling action figures. But we don't live in those dark days anymore, folks. We've got wrestling action figures now of the actual real wrestlers. And you can get them this weekend, Saturday, September 2nd at noon Eastern at JimCornette.com. The pre-orders start for these sets. As I said, there's 2,000. We don't know how this is going to go, feast or famine. But uh, if there are any left, they will go on general sale October, or the first Saturday in October. 
with all of the other merchandise on jimcornette.com. But right now, if you want to pre-order the set and make sure that it's locked in and you don't get left out, you can order the Midnight Express figure set, but you can't order any other of the merchandise at jimcornette.com because we don't want to hold on to your money for 30 days and complicate the issue. If you want the Midnight figure set, you will definitely get in and get yours locked in, and then we will take the month of September to personalize all those photos, pack all those boxes, and get the brunt of everything out to the people starting in October so that we're trying to avoid getting slammed on this thing and make sure everybody has everything they want by Christmas. So anyway, this Saturday, or if you hear this on Sunday, yesterday, but jump in as quickly as you can, if you can, and make everybody happy this Christmas. Brian, this is your show. This is, and get ready. Uh, after Christmas, we have the new Bobby Eaton Blue Blood set with Steve Regal. Uh, well, hey, he decided he wants to go back to WWE instead. We're not going to do that. Oh, but it's my show. Do you know Bobby has had more because because of the fact that Crockett's merchandising was caca. And the first, what, three years easily of WCW was Kaka. Bobby Eaton has had more figure sets with other partners than he has had with the Midnight Express, which is ridiculous. That is and ridiculous. Dennis Condry's never had a figure at all. This will be the first one ever. And Stans, he, as a matter of fact, he had uh, one with the Fabs in the 80s. And that set that Jacks and boy, they were appropriately named. Didn't they do that legend set about 20 years ago? I don't think Stan got 15 cents in Chinese money off of that with him and Bobby, and that's all that he's had. See, a lot so, of people, a lot of fans figure that as soon as a wrestler has an action figure that's on the shelves anywhere, they must be making a lot of money from it. But as we said before, that's typically not the case. You have to sell a shit ton of units. And have a good royalty rate to make any money. Yeah, that's why Vince, uh, the WWF slash E, not Vince personally, but that company always had the um, the jump on everybody when it came to being able to pay the talent more money for merchandise because they jumped in and got the major outlets early, first, whatever, before WCW. And... When they had that infrastructure locked up, then they could send out, I'm, I'm not even trying to insult anybody personally, but a goddamn action figure of Tits McGee. And just by the fact that it was available in so many places, people would accidentally buy it sometimes thinking it was somebody else. But you'd, <laughs> they did volume. Because we, we've talked about the ridiculous royalty rate that anybody that's not a Hogan or an Austin or a rock or whatever, just the regular guys. And many of the top guys through history that got jacked off, they get a minuscule royalty rate, but they get these big checks, especially back in the days when it was new were merchandising money. What's that? And they would get a $25,000 check and say, Oh my fucking God. But that may be, you know, 72 cents for each fucking item that, you know, was sold with them involved in it or whatever. So it's like the Seinfeld episode. Remember, we was getting royalties from the Japanese uh, compilation show, the super terrific happy hour. And it was like 12 cents for each check. Yeah. 
that's that's you not know, just that's like sci-fi. Kind of, that's like getting royalties. That's what that yeah. is. <laughs> yeah, and especially even in the WWE now, now that they've got the network and they don't sell DVDs and blah blah blah. You know, it's it's uh, it's not like it used to be, but you know that that's the unfortunate situation. So we are trying to rectify that by. And, you know, you had asked me a couple weeks ago, what can guys do if they want to market themselves? They've got themselves trademarked. Unfortunately, you still have to do some kind of volume, and it comes down to having a platform. And, you know, I I know the guys, some of the younger generation have the Twitch thing and whatever. I know they monetize that. I don't know if they monetize their merchandise as they could. You need a platform. We have a platform here because a lot of people listen to these programs. We appreciate you. But it's the same thing. It's volume. You can be, you can have the greatest action figure in the world or the greatest product in the world. Or you can be affiliated with the biggest star in the world. And if if you don't have a way to get people apprised that you are selling something or doing something, then they ain't going to buy it. And the problem with a lot of the guys that are trying to market themselves is that are not tied up to a company that puts shit in Walmart or whatever is that they've, they've lost the platform and they don't know how to create their own. So we suggest everybody in the wrestling business become suddenly entertaining and get into podcasting. Or pay us to call you up once a week and yell at you. One way or the other. Well, there you, that there would be demand for that, but I've, I'm already yelling enough. I'd, I'm afraid I'd lose my voice. Hey, before we move too far past this, and we have a lot to go over today, but an interesting question, just because it ties into the Midnight Express that came in, I wanted to ask you. This was sent to cornydrivethrough at gmail.com from Chuck Nolan Jr. El right Every time. Illyria? Illyria, Ohio. If Jim could go back and accomplish one, would he rather have had a proper match with the Rock and Roll Express at Starcade 87 or properly finish their run with the Horsemen? Oh, good Lord. Uh, properly finish the run with the Horsemen. Because it was a disappointment that the we never got to have... The thing about this, of all the Midnight Express matches that people remember, said this was the best with Fantastics, or that was Southern Boys, or Midnight and Rock and Roll drew more money than anything in the fucking 80s, or whatever. We never had a good match at Starcade. Right. Scaffold, well, it was the... Scaffold is a different thing. Well, 85 was the street fight, and that was, that was, it was a, it was a good match if you could ignore the gimmick that Ronnie Garvin was in miss Atlanta lively and good Lord, but a street fight with the midnight express against Jimmy Valiant and miss Atlanta lively, the match itself, everybody's bleeding. The shit looked good. They're fucking, you know, they're ripping off the tuxedos, whatever the fuck, but it was still Ronnie dressed as a woman because of that. I don't know who pitched that. I don't know if it's Ronnie pitched it to dusty dusty pitched it to Ron. I don't know what, Ronnie Garvin has always claimed that he pitched it. He's always complained publicly about Dusty Rose and Dusty's booking. They had a big falling out, I guess. But he's always insisted that the two times he dressed as a woman were his idea. Yeah. And... Because remember, the second time he knocked out J.J. Well, no, J.J. Dillon was hiding in the closet or about to, and he knocked out Flair dressed as Precious. Yes. 
And well, Miss Atlanta Lively came back and did something else too at some point. But and I mean, you know, I told you when he when Ronnie first day he did that in Atlanta at Techwood at the TBS studios, dressed up in that gimmick, and he's got the big hair and the tight dress and the fake snavitzes and all the makeup on and dangly earrings and these leather boots. Barbarian came in, looked across from the room or the room like. 30 feet away, kind of to the side, but his eyes perked up. He's like, ooh, who's the new girl? And we had to tell him. And he sat down and shut up for a little while. So there's that story, and there's the Gene Anderson story that you've told, and there's the story about him filming Body Slam and his wife. (laughs) Was the Barbarian just the source of constant comedic stories and anecdotes yes then? he because he, he was a, he was such a great guy and but at the same time he, when he would say something that would that would look belie the barbaric look of him the giant you know muscle-bound beast with the weird haircut and the face paint and he's like oh who's the new girl or you know oh gene please don't hurt me no more but anyway, where I was going with that was Starcade 86 was a scaffold with the Road Warriors. Starcade 87 was the scaffold with the Rock and Roll. And then Starcade 88, we actually got to have a good match with the original Midnight, which was basically the one and only pay per view match that we got to have in that whole program before it got cut off. But it still wasn't, the presentation had already been watered down and. We didn't get the finish that we wanted because we wanted to put them over, but they insisted we go over and then they get heat after. So it. Who insisted? Was it Jim Crockett Jr.? Um, yeah, by that point, it was Jimmy because they'd fired Dusty and Jimmy was the interim booker. He wanted to keep us and he didn't, he didn't like the original Midnight team because he didn't think much of Randy Rose's work. And as a number one. <laughs> At that point in time, with the roster we had, Randy Rose's work was comparable at, at minimum. And secondly, I don't care if it was goddamn Cheetah the Chimpanzee. The only reason that it worked was because it was the original Midnight Express, for fuck's sake. And he didn't. And that's why we ended up in the loser leave match, where he was going to get rid of Randy. And then Dennis said, "Well, fuck this. They're doing it again." And he quit first. And then there we went. But nevertheless. Um, so I would have rather finished the program with the horseman to answer, finish answering the question than they asked the one you were going to ask, because we had just started with the horseman. We didn't even get to have a big, big match, title match, whatever, on something that would be recorded like a pay-per-view or a television program, live clash, whatever, to where we could have that. We just, it just started drawing fucking money at the house shows and we were making the biggest checks we had made including uh, the the rock and roll program because we were getting paid not only as main eventers against the horsemen but also because everything else was dreck whereas in except for flair and luger whereas in 86 they were spreading more of the money around because everything was hot the match at starcade 88 against the original midnight express was that the best match the two teams had together were there house show matches that were better? Um, I, we didn't have that many house show matches. That's what I was trying to remember, if I even remember yeah. you guys having another straight-up tag match. And remember, that period of time was also where TBS decided, well, we don't want to spend the money to fly the managers to the house shows. We're going to do like Vince used to do and just have them on TV. 
And so the Midnights had a couple of matches and house shows that me and Paul E. weren't at. And people didn't give a shit because that was another thing. That was the fucking program. And they didn't understand that. And then me and Paul, getting incredible amounts of heat with the rest of the managers, said, we'll fly ourselves. And they said, oh, no, we don't want you to do that. And then we started showing up in places we could drive. If you guys had started flying yourselves, talk about heat. How much heat would you guys have with a Gary Hart? I'm trying to think who else was still there oh, at he, that time. They would have all, Paul Jones, um, because remember, Paul was now getting in the office because George Scott was about to come in. So he was there until George left and he followed. And I'd like to say Gary Hart would have, understood our youthful enthusiasm and the fact that it was business because that was the fucking program, but he probably would have wanted to cut us just for the, then, you know, it may, it would have made everybody else look bad, but fuck it. So the whole thing died. And this was the drive through ladies and gentlemen. Well, there you go. Hey, hey, we did two shows on the experience so we could only do a half a show here and people shouldn't complain, right? They shouldn't, but they will. And uh, and we have so much more to go on this show. I'm just joshing. We have so much more to go. You had to say that. Now we have to think about how much more we have to go. But there's so much to talk about. We have a big conversation later on with Tim Hornbaker. But Jim, once again, we start where we kind of left off with the experience. CM Punk and AEW, more stories have emerged. You may have been following this closer than I at this point. Apparently. Brian Alvarez of F4W Online and the Wrestling Observer reported that there was a second incident backstage at All In in London. Yeah, and that's how people started picking up on it. Second incident at All In London. And the story that was reported, and I'm somewhat paraphrasing, I don't have it in front of me, was that after the Jack Perry incident, Miro confronted CM Punk and they almost got into it. Well, here there, there was some verbiage exchanged. We understand that it was like Miro came in and, and Punk was like, do we have a problem? And Miro was, I don't know. I do will we? come all over you. Yeah, well, no, he didn't. He only wanted to come all over me now. Come on, be serious. <laughs> and I don't know. Do we have a problem? Well, do we need to go outside? Punk said, do we need to go outside? Well, maybe we do. I don't know. Let's just go out here. And, and they stormed off. That's what, and Brian Alvarez also, he said that he talked to five different, and this is the greatest thing, that Brian Alvarez, who, bless him, because it, it sort of like the Vanity Press project that I talked about that used to exist in printing a long time ago, Brian Alvarez made himself a professional wrestler when it became a thing that you could do by just going and getting himself booked on independent events and with his size i would imagine that it was probably in exchange for favorable reporting on their uh yellow journalism site because for fuck's sake i i don't know another reason why brian alvarez who lives in washington would be wrestling in suburban uh northern indiana on a local event what does oh really? yeah, I didn't know about this. Yes, I I, I actually he saw the in when, Indiana <laughs> when I went to Chicago a few years is before the pandemic, so four or five years ago, for something. 
I saw a flyer, some kind of black flag pro wrestling in Crown Point, Indiana, and Brian Alvarez's name was on it. I'm like, how oh. the fuck does that happen? Except that potentially they say, well, they'll talk about us. But nevertheless. Black flag pro wrestling. I understand Greg Ginn took all the money. You know, I know they were a punk band. <laughs> you went too deep on it for me. Or I'd have popped for all you. All right, all right. But anyway, the point I was making is Brian Alvarez, who manufactured him a little wrestling career and, you know, buddied up with Dave on the newsletter business, said he talked to five different people who were there. And not only there, but he... I know there was a bunch of people in Wembley Stadium, but I don't think he needed to talk to the hot dog vendor about what happened in the locker room. So he's saying that he talked to five different people in the locker room. And three of them were, were Matt Hardy. Well, there you go. <laughs> Broken Matt, Woken Matt, and fucking Spoken Matt. But he talked to five different people that would have knowledge of this situation, and they all said it was serious. And that uh, indicates not only that Brian Alvarez, that there's a bunch of blabbermouth, whiny little fucking tattletale motherfuckers in that locker room that would immediately be able to report to Brian Alvarez. But secondly, that they believed it or that they wanted other people to believe it, whichever it may be, because we now find out that Punk and Miro were fucking around and joking. Yeah, you got a problem with me? Oh, we need to take it outside? Let's take and it to the ring! Yeah, let's take it. And as and they either bought it or want other people to buy it. Like, oh, this guy's having a problem with everybody. They were apparently laughing about the problem that did exist from the little whinel, whiny jungle jack. Yes, Miro has a problem with God, not punk. I thought they were the same thing. Oh, come on. See, now your, your fandom of punk has gone too far. Well, no, I saw the sign, CM Punk is God. They're all over Chicago, along with those people with those tiki torches, waiting for the opportunity to set the seats on fire if they bought tickets for three shows in one week in the same fucking town, and they don't get to see their favorite in any of them. From what I understand, AEW has banned tiki torches from the arena. Well, then they'll have a fucking acetylene torch, a blow torch, a pro wrestling torch. Well, they, <laughs> a few of those pro wrestling torches have been set on fire. <laughs> and they're going to fucking be pissed. But yeah, the Miro and Punk thing. And, and then uh, that's why I, I saw people shooting at Alvarez, shooting down his explanation that, well, five people said that it was a dipshit, it doesn't matter, because it still wasn't. Apparently, it was a whole big fucking hoo-ha over nothing. What in the past did those five sources tell you about things backstage? Whether it was the brawl yeah. out last year, or brawl in... Yeah, it was brawl out last year. I'm so confused with all these pay-per-views. What else have these sources told you that were reported, in some cases, as people see it as anti-punk stories... But what else do these sources who were wrong about this tell you in the past? <laughs> about what and, they perceived uh, in the back, just standing yes, there and watching things. What they perceived and assumed was taking place or wanted people to perceive or assume was taking place. Because well, we know a lot of these 
kids in the locker room ain't exactly smart to the business. If a couple of guys are yelling at each other and it sounds ominous, apparently they're about to commit mayhem. That's what they think. Or other ones are, hey, well, boy, we could see, you know, nobody likes this guy. That's the story we'll tell. And here's fucking, you know, lap dog and cauliflower head over there willingly because they get attention and petting and ranch dressing, I guess. I don't fucking know. Uh, they get all the attention from these guys, so they parrot it because why would they lie to me? We're friends. Friends. CM Punk was at the Cauliflower Alley Club the last couple of days in Las Vegas getting an award, and the Wrestling News' Lou Kippelman was there, and he approached him to ask him about this. We may have made a mistake, though. The question was, hey, Punk, do you got a problem? And then Punk put Lou in a front face lock and it was over. Well, no, come on. Now, that did not happen at all because I've seen the size of Kippelman's neck and there's no way that Punk could reach all the way around that. So. I sent Lou. I said, if you run into Punk, here are some questions for you. Hey, Punk, does Colin Thompson owe you money? <laughs> uh, now that you've attended CAC, when do you expect to test positive for COVID? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, did I have any other ones here? Uh, hey, Punk, do you want to step outside? Well, and, and meanwhile, Punk was getting an award for his outstanding contributions to professional wrestling in and outside the ring and the furtherance of same. While these dipshits are over there rolling around in barbed wire and broken glass. What do the issues with Jungle Boy say about the state of the rainforest? <laughs> Lou was going to ask these questions, but in approaching Punk, uh, A-Steel bit him. So Lou is now out of commission. He's Son of a, a bitch. He's getting a I tetanus thought, shot. Now, I thought they had, had required Ace to wear a muzzle within 50 feet of any public structure. I don't know. That, that may not have... That may, well, you know what happens? It's Vegas. Vegas stays yeah. in Vegas. Yeah, they, <laughs> you, can't, you can't enforce those That's rulings right. in Vegas. That's right. Mike Lano's there, so you can't enforce any rules in Vegas. But, Jim, uh, here we are on the show, and that is Punk Miro. And we have so much more to talk about here on the show. Why don't we get a question or two? Let's get a question or two. Before we uh, go any further, I have a question here, Jim. This one sent to hornydrivethrough at gmail.com is from Alan in Dundee, Scotland. My oldest. And, and, and by the way, do you know that's how Dundee got his name? From Dundee, Scotland? Yes, because his real name was Crookshank. Crookshank. He was born in Scotland, but he moved to Australia. They knew he was Scottish. Uh, Dundee. Bill Dundee. So what happened in his family's past? Crookshank? That's a common name across the pond. You've never heard that? It's a common thing that happens in prison. Well, sometimes these things can both be true at the same time. Well, let's go to this question. Now, nothing to do with Alan here. My oldest who's, son, who's a crook, but has never been shanked. He is not a crook, but it, let's, well, let's see what he says here. My oldest right. son started training to be a wrestler over a year ago and was looking for some advice for him to really make it as far as he can. His coaches have given me and him good feedback on how he's progressing, but any advice you can give to further him. So come on, give uh, some advice to Alan and Dundee Scotland's son, okay. who's training to be a wrestler. I've never... <laughs> I mean, you know, uh, just give him some your, advice. Just tuck, come on. Tuck your head. <laughs> tuck your chin, right? No, it's impossible to give advice of any specificity 
to somebody where you've never seen them, you don't know their age, weight, height, athletic aptitude, personality, also what school are they going to, his coaches. I don't know who these people are. Uh, my advice could range uh, from anywhere from keep doing what you're doing because you look really good to run out of this situation like your head's on fucking fire. And, you know, there's, again, there's not really a rule of thumb. I don't know that much about the current wrestling scene in Scotland as to how people are getting booked or how often or how profitably. So I would need more information, but I think maybe the, the question that might have been asked was beforehand was like, my son wants to be a wrestler. Here's the name of the guy that wants to train him. And here's how much money he wants. And here's how long he says it's going to take. And then I may have said, well, I've never heard of this fucking guy. And that sounds expensive. And holy shit, he can't do it in six weeks. So this is a bunch of bullshit. Um, that kind of thing might be easier than jumping in right in the middle of this. Jim, I'm going to ask you a question right now, because several people sent me an image that I have in front of me. If I asked you to name the last four people to pin Roman Reigns, could you do it? No. Any guesses? <laughs> um, God damn it. Goldberg's one of them, right? No. No? No. I thought Goldberg beat him one time. Who did Goldberg beat that was... Brock. Goldberg beat Brock. That's right. That was a surprise. Um, God damn it. I got no fucking idea. I, he's been the guy since we've been watching this shit regularly, hadn't he? He's been the guy for a while. Here are the last four people to pin him. Jay Uso. Okay, well, I guess I should have known that, shouldn't I? Probably, I guess recently happened. Yeah, see how this stuff sticks with me. It shows you the match results don't matter anymore. <laughs> Baron Corbin. Oh, God, and I remember him saying that in an interview now. So, yes, that's, uh, that's very telling. Eric Rowan. Okay, that's got to be a while back. I would Doesn't think. Doesn't it? I don't remember when that was. So, yeah, I would guess it was a while back. Shield, Shield and the Wyatt family? No, I think it had to be after that. Well, when? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. And finally, the fourth one on this list. I was surprised by this. Shane McMahon. Oh, my God. When did they ever? And apparently it's not been mentioned since. Shane hasn't been mentioned since. Well, wait, he hasn't been mentioned in <laughs> a year and a half now. But it would, the, the last time he was back, they weren't. Screaming it from the rooftops, were they? See, if I'm Shane McMahon, you gotta wonder if he wants to make a big comeback because his last appearance was so bad. It was the worst, the worst things that could have happened happened. Does he want, like, one last appearance just to end on a high note? Well, you know, here's, here's how I'd be looking at it. Because now you would think, and, and I'm pretty sure Shane would look at it differently. I've, I know he would love, because of his... His drive, he is physically driven. He likes working out. He likes athletics. He's the gonzo guy. He's put everything into all of the bumps he takes. He probably wants dreams in his head. You know, in the next year or two, I got to come back. I got to redeem myself. I got to go out with a, a big performance or whatever. But I would be going, all right, 
with all the shit that's happened in the wrestling business since I fucked up, they probably, nobody's still actively pointing and laughing at me, right? But if I was to come back and fuck up again, my God, that would be so legendary. I can't take the chance of that. I'm just going to fade off and hope everybody forgets about that. Do you think Shane McMahon, if he wanted to end on a good note, and the new ownership structure of WWE said, we don't want to do that, would he go to AEW and would Tony Khan allow that on his show? No, he wouldn't, and yes, he would. Shane wouldn't go, Tony would allow it. You can't Uh, see Shane ever being mad enough with his dad or the system after his dad to go there? Okay, interesting. No. No, because that would also, regardless how mad he was at his dad, that would be Shane going to the second-rate, number two, you know, co-host kind of position instead of the only thing he's ever done was for the biggest company in the world, his dad's, the McMahon family, his granddad's. He would not, maybe if one of his beloved Friends, if The Undertaker opened up a promotion in Houston and was going to goddamn, you know, have a relief fund fundraiser for dead puppies or something, Shane McMahon might show up in a situation like that. But Shane McMahon would never work for another wrestling promotion just to do a proper uh, retirement match or anything else. Well, Jim, we continue on here with the drive-thru with a big segment, something we've all been looking forward to, and that is a conversation with Tim Hornbaker about his brand new book, The Last Real World Champion, The Legacy of Nature Boy Ric Flair. Well, that's right, and I've got to be honest, uh, I've been waiting to do this for a while because Tim Hornbaker has written really the definitive history books of the modern era on professional wrestling with the trilogy about the NWA, Capital Sports that became the WWF and the death of the territories, and then, you know, profiling Nature Boy Buddy Rogers, and now finally this is the big one, and we have the man himself on the phone with us uh, direct from the safe part of Florida, uh, Mr. Tim Hornbaker. Tim, thank you very much for being on the show today. Well, thank you very much, Jim and Brian. I'm very humbled by your words. It is a true honor and a privilege to be with you gentlemen today. I got to ask you, um, the thing that I'm most blown away by, before we talk about the Flair book in specific, is that your research is amazing. And it's obviously time-consuming. It's got to be somewhat frustrating at various points, but it's so thorough. And you always, in especially in your uh, books, as I mentioned, on the NWA history and the formation of capital sports, the uh, the amount of material and places you have to go to get it that you've got to sift through to do something like that from that far back in history is, am- how do you have the patience is, is my question. You know, it's something I think I, I've learned over time. I mean, I, I really love researching. I, let me just put that out there. I really do love digging through the old documents and, and trying to find information that nobody's ever found before. And I think I got that bug probably 20, 25 years ago, and I still have it today. It's just something that drives me. Uh, I really do love uh, sifting through court documents and newspapers and 
I, I do, and, and I think another thing about it is that when I find a piece of information, even a small line in a, in a column from 50 years ago, I have a kind of a system of organization where I'll tuck that away and then later on I'll, I'll piece that in with, with other information. So I think it is kind of a, a system that I, I have built through the years. And, um, and I, I, you know, it's been a learned process. I, I definitely struggled. I think in my NWA book, uh, I've always said that if I could go back and do that book differently, I certainly would, and I would improve upon it. Um, but I think at this stage of the game, um, I've gotten to a point where I can, I can do these projects and take on so much information and then figure out a way to have a uh, kind of a style and a narration where it, it's not an overburden, but it, it flows when you read it. So I, again, it's been a, a trial and error. I've definitely made my mistakes through through the years and, and getting to the point where I am now, but it's definitely been a, a journey that I've enjoyed. I've got to have you come up here and just organize my vault if you've got this system. I have probably every <laughs> fact ever in wrestling, and I don't know where any of them are, but you know that's the thing. You're very chronological, and you said that Sometimes you find facts that nobody's ever known before. Actually, they've been there all the time. They weren't remembered or weren't important because people didn't know how to put them together. But when we go back and look at your books, especially me knowing someone, Brian knowing somewhat about wrestling history, anyway, things we read make more sense to us be, with this fact that you've written because it applies to stuff we already know. Okay, that's why potentially Jack Pfeffer dressed the way he did or whatever the case, right? And that's very yeah, yeah. helpful. Um, Absolutely, yes. And, you, you know, you did the the history of the promotions and then you tackled Nature Boy Buddy Rogers, which was an amazing read because he was you know, not only an innovator in the business, but he was the, not only did Flair inherit a nickname and certain, you know, characteristics of the gimmick, he made it his own, but these two guys in their own separate generations were the ones who spawned so many fans that were wrestlers that were in the business. You know, the, the, the aficionados of Nature Boy Buddy Rogers, all the way from Ray Stevens to Jackie Fargo, and then the countless people that have emulated Ric Flair in some way or another. Were they the two most prolific guys in the wrestling industry, maybe, at spawning fans in the business who became imitators or homagers or whatever and carried that their personalities into their own gimmicks more than anybody else ever? I, they have to be. I mean, I agree with you. They really have just influenced so many different uh, people who in turn have influenced people. I mean, if you even go to, you know, look at, you know, Ray Stevens, like you had mentioned, um, he was influenced by Buddy Rogers. And now how many people have been influenced by Ray Stevens? I mean, I think we're, we're looking at a, lineage uh of wrestling history flair. here with these two guys yeah exactly flair so yeah you yeah so i mean you look at this lineage and it, it keeps going and i think uh, a lot of younger guys today are, are still marveling at what flair has done in his promos and his wrestling style and they should i mean he has and even buddy rogers i mean they can watch the the videos and, and learn something about what he was able to do and what made him so successful so i definitely agree with you 
But we talked about, you know, Rogers here on the program a lot in that he kind of set the blueprint or the pattern for the modern style of match and the modern style in the TV era of the heel strutting and he pulled my hair ref and, you know, didn't invent maybe, depending on who you talk to, but certainly perfected the fucking high spot. You know, one tackle, drop down, arm drag, arm drag, you know, body slam, drop kick, I'm taking a bump. What? That's what Rogers called them sequences. Definitely, and, yes. you know, Flair did not revolutionize the entire business in terms of coming up with something that elementary because he came along later. It had already, all, the, all the really elementary stuff had already been done, but Flair built the modern blueprint of the world championship match. It wasn't the Dory and Briscoe and O'Connor style. It was now, it was a faster pace and maybe harder hitting more strikes. And now, you know, what Flair did night after night for, for those years as world champion is kind of the model for the modern world title match. Absolutely. Uh, Ric Flair, you know, I would say, you know, revolutionized what it meant to be the world champion. And I think because he believed so much in it, he lived and breathed the world championship, but also he brought extreme conditioning and, uh, you know, his own flavor to the ring. And, and even outside the ring, you know, being the cocky, confident uh, interview that he was, I mean, he was just the entire package, but night after night after night out there on the road, he really epitomized what the definition of a traveling world champion was. And he differed from Rogers and differed from Fez. And he just brought an, a new kind of uh, style to it. And I think one of his real strengths was that he was able to match up against so many different guys out there uh, of varying size and, and talent and, and still put on a good match. I mean, you left those arenas really wowed by Ric Flair. And, and in those days, if you, you know, you read contemporaneous reports from fans, Flair was always beloved in those days for how hard he worked and, and what he gave night after night. So um, it just, he really defined what it was to be the world champion and there was no one else like him. Well, and you know, with, with Rogers, his personality during the fifties, it was kind of like, uh, you know, his heel persona, kind of like one of the wise guy gangsters in the gangster movies in the 40s, right? Hey, Pally. You know, but that was contemporary at that time. And with Flair, when he was in the Carolinas in the mid-late 70s, you know, except for the fact that he was 250 pounds, he looked like a guy that might be on stage at the Greensboro Coliseum in a fucking rock band. He was contemporary. So it was contemporary, two completely different images but contemporary for their time and that's a thing with i mean you cover flair's life story including incredible detail on the you know his adoption that's been public knowledge and you know some of his childhood school exploits etc but i mean you could write a book on various parts of rick flair's life and you know you could have a seven volume set i think you did a really good job balancing, you know, you could write a book about his wrestling triumphs that only the wrestling fan would want to read and leave out all the personal stuff. Or you could write 
you know, two books on the personal stuff, the good stuff, and then the modern day, the bad stuff, the financial scandals. You could cover all of that. You get everything in, you mention it, but it's neither a tabloid sleaze focus where everything's on his questionable antics, you know, in modern times, or it's not just a fan publication where it's just all wrestling. You've kind of balanced the whole thing throughout as best you could in one in one book of 300 and some pages. Jim, I, I really appreciate you saying that really, really, because I, I really labored and struggled with this book. I mean, I, I knew that with Flair's wrestling career, if I was just writing about his wrestling career, you know, I can, I've done that before. I've written about people's wrestling careers and their, their achievements and their highs and lows in the ring and around the ring. I've done that but with Flair. There was a whole nother dimension of his, you know, like you said, his financial problems, his divorces, his, you know, the plane ride from hell, all of these things that were compiling. And, and I knew about that going into this book. I knew that that was going to be difficult, but the key was finding a balance in the narrative and, and keeping it unbalanced and independent as I do with my books. I wanted to write it in such a way where it didn't look like that I was defending Flair or I was hyping him up or anything. I wasn't trying to explain why he did what he did. I wanted to give readers, you know, the information I wanted to, to lay it out. And I wanted to do it in a thorough way in a kind of a chronological order where, yeah, in the seventies, you see that he has financial problems. You see that he's traveling more and spending time with his family less. You see that, um, you know, he, yeah, he's gonna, he, it looks like he's going to have a divorce and, you know, there's all of these things that are building up and I have to do it intertwined with the wrestling stuff too, you know, because that's the meat of the matter. I'm trying to combine this and I'm telling you, it was not easy. So, uh, for you to, for you to say that and mention that I really appreciate that. And it was, it was a difficult chore and I, I just tried the best I could. Well, I think a lot of the, and there's still a ton of the old Mid-Atlantic wrestling fans out there in the Carolinas that remember the 70s. But I think any wrestling fan, even people who weren't born in the 70s, the, one of the best parts about this book from the wrestling standpoint is you go into great detail with dates and, and crowds and quotes from newspaper articles on Flair's time in the Carolinas from the time he started in 74 through when... He first time as world champion in 81, that seven-year period, he went out to St. Louis and different places in Japan and et cetera, but he was the, the man in the Carolinas. And it also shows how popular the business was in that territory at that point in time. And, you know, the, the, the various huge names that Crockett kept in the territory where you see Flair and Valentine as champions uh, wrestling the Andersons and wrestling, you know, all the top names of the NWA. And it's great that also that there was heavy newspaper coverage. I say heavy for wrestling, heavy newspaper coverage in that territory, Charlotte Observer and the Raleigh paper, et cetera, because you've got stuff to look back on. And that was reported in, in, instead of just in the arena programs, but, uh, you know, with the, um, with the Charlotte Observer article that you uh, mentioned from 1976, Flair's earnings are quoted as like 125 grand. A lot of people may think that's wrestling hyperbole, but I know that Dennis Condry, from the time that we became partners in the Midnight Express, wanted to go to the Carolinas because he had been there 
early in his career and he'd been back and forth and he knew how much those guys were making, even though he'd never been able to work there as a feature, he started out refereeing that, you know, uh, early in his career there. But those guys, Flair and Valentine, were having two and three thousand dollar weeks in 1976-77 in a three or four state area to the point where they would rent limousines to go to the fucking matches just to impress the fans. It was it was an incredible period, and you went into great detail with that. I think a lot of the modern fans that have just seen Flair on national TV from the late 80s and on might be thrilled to learn what a star he was and what level of business that the business was doing back at that point in time. Yes, absolutely. The The Mid-Atlantic region was the place to be. And I think that is why so many guys worked there and, and stayed there because there was just so much money in, in Jim, Crockett's ter- uh, Jim Crockett's territory. Uh, as you said, it was a multi-state area and they worked, you know, sometimes seven days a week, you know, and um, there was just a lot of money and Flair was on top. I mean, once he got to the, to the, to the pinnacle of the, the region, the money to be made was astronomical. And I think he was asked at times, you know, why didn't he travel more? And uh, not only, you know, the money was a great allure. I think he also loved the territory. He loved the people. He was, uh, uh, had a great life there. And um, just the, the, the territory was thriving. And um, yeah, the money was amazing. And uh, he, he really became a superstar. I mean, Flair really transitioned from, uh, being a, a rookie prelim guy and, and working at the bottom in the AWA to going to right on the doorstep of being the a world champion. So he really thrived making money, but in the ring and as a personality, he really came into his own. And uh, yeah, the Mid-Atlantic Territory was a really booming place and it was a lot of fun to research. I can tell you firsthand, Flair loved the city of Charlotte. Not the ter- He loved the territory, too, but he loved the city of Charlotte. I, I don't think he actually ever moved except when he had a spousal support issue and maybe was a uh, persona non grata in North Carolina for a little while. Um, yes, yes, yeah. But we all, we all did because it was such a great place because there were other – I mean, you know, no place that you could live in the Mid-South Territory – and still make all the towns was appealing to live in as a city. And, you know, other territories were hit and miss, but the Carolinas, not only the quality of life, and Charlotte hadn't exploded yet like it has now, but it was still a good-sized city, but uh, but also the the way that the people, whether it be the newspapers, whether it be the radio and TV stations, or just the average people at the gas station and the average person on the street they respected the wrestlers. They knew who they were. It wasn't, you know, they didn't get a lot of shit for being wrestlers. It was a big deal in the Carolinas, and you were celebrities. And the heels still had heat and had problems, but overall, it wasn't like some of the other territories where a lot of people in town go, ah, wrestling. It was a big deal. And that's why so many people, so many guys in the business, not only wanted to work there because the money and the the you know the fact that it was the biggest NWA territory, but also it was just a, a good place to live and you didn't catch a lot of shit. Absolutely. And I think one of the keys is that like as you had mentioned earlier, the the newspaper coverage, I think there was a lot of respect for for wrestling. I think that uh the Crockett's had um 
had uh, had earned a lot of respect locally through different uh, things in the the community. And uh, I, I think they had built wrestling up while, again, it might not have been totally uh, accepted, but it was treated with respect, as you said. And with a guy like Flair, who, uh, and even all the guys, I mean, they, they really had a lot of esteem and respect and um, it just, like you said, it was a booming territory and uh, well, who, who was the, who who was the guy from channel nine? What was his name? Harold Johnson. When Flair made the helicopter. Yeah. Flair made the entrance in the helicopter. It was one of the local news helicopters and the local newscaster was in the fucking helicopter with him. And absolutely Flair and those guys could call any radio station anytime they wanted and they'd put them on the air. Um, they had one of the local stations had me be a guest DJ when the regular morning team went on vacation one week, just because they were like, you know, wrestlers were the celebrities in town and uh, flair commanded that respect, not only just due to the Crockett, you know, wrestling connection, but also every time one of these guys met him, he was so, he was putting the business over and he was so professionally dressed and he had the suit or the, whatever the case, and you couldn't help but get caught up in the whole thing. And that's one thing that flair morphed into his, his person. It, it, it was his personality, but morphed into the visual aspect of it. And I've always, you know, joked that everybody else would be on the plane first thing in the morning from some town sitting in their seat with their head down or holding their hands or their face or, trying to go to sleep or whatever. And Flair would walk in the front door with the belt bag in one hand and his brush in the other in a three-piece suit and the sunglasses, 6.30 in the morning, combing his hair and go, whoo, and he's ready to fucking go. It was demoralizing. (laughs) How many stories did you get from people about his constitution? Arn Anderson used to say, he's not from here. And and it's true. I mean, it's really unbelievable how he would would wrestle sixty minutes, party all night, be up at you know the crack of dawn to to work out, and you know be on on his way to the next town. I mean, he he really had a, a remarkable constitution, and I've never heard anyone in the business have anything like it. I mean, it's really uh, astronomical what he was able to do, and I think that spoke to his longevity, and uh, he it also spoke to the re, you know the fact that he loved. Uh, the business, and that's the way he carried himself. Yeah, it, the, the Terry Taylor story is hilarious, and I've seen other examples of this kind of in different places, but Terry Taylor was finally getting a push as a single in Mid-South, and he was going to get an NWA world title shot in the Superdome against Flair. This was 1985. And I remember the tape Brian, you may remember this. The tape became widely collected and and sought after. I think Joel Watts probably sent out the unedited version to some people. Um, But it was a great fucking match, dark as shit, because they couldn't light to Superdome for television. But Flair came in like two hours before the show, heavily hung over. (laughs) Terry said he looked like he couldn't even open his eyes. And they said, "Do do you want anything? He said, give me a cup of coffee. No, he said, I'm going to go take a nap. And he went and took a nap, and he got up like an hour later. He said, give me a cup of coffee. And Terry still not spoken to him, and they went over a couple of things and then went out and 
went 45 minutes or whatever it was. And Terry said that he almost fucking puked and flair would not stop. He was just, it was like nothing was wrong. Cause when he turned it on, he turned it on. He did. He was like a machine and it's, it's really just unbelievable what he was able to do and how he was able to transition between all these facets of his life. And he, he can go from, one gear to the other and, and when it was time to step into the ring and, and perform before an audience he he was the professional he was the nature boy and he he let it all fly you've got uh tons of the results of his major matches in here and dates and etc but uh, they've uh, put out on twitter occasionally uh, one or two of the old nwa world champion schedules for 1983, I think, is the period of time uh, Flair had it. Uh, they put that out on Twitter here lately, where you see that there were literally no days off for a month or six weeks at a time, and then you'd get one or two or whatever, or they'd be in a, a territory for four or five days like the Carolinas, but in the middle of it, he'd have to shoot down to Texas or up to St. Louis to make a shot or whatever. I wonder, is there any way of calculating in the main world title years what kind of mileage Flair may have traveled in just a month's period of time? Because I know I used to keep ours because we were in a car all the time, but he was in a plane every day. Yeah, absolutely. There, I think in the book I do calculate one of his journeys, uh, but I know it was in there. There were times where he had stretches where it was easily tens of thousands of miles across the United States and then shooting. I think on one time he, he was in Charlotte and then had to go to Tokyo. And I mean, the, the, the trips back and forth were, were continuous. And within a month's time, I mean, easily, I would say 25, 50,000 miles. I mean, it's, it's really hard to calculate, but he, it, the amount of mileage that he was doing on a consistent basis uh, was like nothing that no, none of his predecessors ha had dealt with. Uh, and yeah. uh, he and and like we said, I mean, his his constitution to deal with that was just remarkable. Well, we've talked on this show about a double shot he did one time where they accidentally double booked him. He was in Raleigh, North Carolina, for an eight o'clock show, and Tampa, Florida, for an eight thirty show, courtesy of a private plane and people stalling down south in Florida so he could make both commitments. That's got to be some kind of fucking I, one I day think, record yeah, i heard i heard about that jim and that is yeah that was that was probably one of the most crazy things that i heard of i actually uh contacted one of my uh fellow historians here in florida to, to confirm that that actually happened and he said yeah for sure enough that that did and i i was amazed yeah flair oh, really, all, really... all the boys that night in the dorton arena in the back when they put flair on second we're dying laughing because there's the the guy with the car at the back door as soon as flair <laughs> He's not even going to go back in the locker room. The guy's got his bag. He's going to oh, jump man. in the car in his in his tights and go to the airport in Raleigh to take off in the private plane to get to fucking Tampa in time where somebody's going to pick him up there and get him, hustle him in the ring by 11 o'clock or whatever. And, I mean, that was, that was not even a, a, a strictly a double shot because a double shot in wrestling terminology is an afternoon and evening show that was just ridiculous. It was a mistake that he was able to fucking do. But I mean, and Crockett I, booked us yeah. one time, Flair on top, a double shot in Greensboro, North Carolina at two o'clock and Albuquerque, New Mexico at eight o'clock their time, mountain time. 
And Flair made both of those, as along with the rest of us, but he was in the main event of the fucking thing. But this one was even tighter. It's incredible. I mean, what he was able to pull off, and I think uh, when, when Jim uh, Barnett was booking the title uh, before uh, it became exclusive to, to uh, Crockett, I think Barnett tried to work with him at times, but with, with the demanding uh, NWA promoters as they were, they always wanted to slip in an extra date here and there. And uh, like you said, Flair was able to meet those commitments, even in spite of ridiculous travel and hustling and, and to his own peril at times, you know, times that maybe he wouldn't be able to, to go home or, or be with his family. He, he was back on the road me- making another date. And well, uh, Brian, I know you might have some, th- I know you wanted to talk about New Zealand, but also what are we not uh, discussing in the career of the nature boy here while we got Tim on the phone? Yeah, a few questions. Uh, Tim, in the process of researching this book, how many times did Ric Flair expose his penis to you? Hey! Uh, this, is a sa- <laughs> this is a safe space. You could talk about it here. All right. I think I'm going to need some therapy after this. Uh, no, but, uh, yeah, <laughs> he, uh, yeah, I, let's not, he let's actually, not Brian, road, he, he thought he saw it one time, but it was really just a baby's arm holding an apple. Well, <laughs> all kidding aside, the buddy Rogers book is such an amazing piece of work. I mean, beyond just the book, the research, it taught so many of us so much more about buddy Rogers than we ever knew. And you go from that to from nature boy, buddy Rogers, the nature boy, Ric Flair, Buddy Rogers, unfortunately, no longer here. There was no one for you to talk to. If he was here, you don't have any guarantee he would have broken kayfabe or talked to you about any of this stuff. With Ric Flair, was there any cooperation? And do you think you needed cooperation from Ric Flair? That's a great question. I I think in the very beginning, there was a, a thought process that having Flair's involvement to some degree, just to get some of the harder questions answered, would be a good idea. I actually discussed this with my editor, and I, I did a lot of thinking about it. And with my previous books, even though uh, you know this is the first individual that I've written about in a biography for, biography form that is still alive, I, I think it was important to me to maintain an unbiased and independent research tact going into the book. And I think that was my my goal from beginning to end. And, and once once I had made the decision, that was what I focused on, just trying to find independent sources and to utilize information from uh, from even old interviews. But I really wasn't getting a a, a biased look. I wasn't getting a, a, you know, I wasn't putting out what Flair had said in his autobiographies and whatnot. I was kind of doing the independent research. And I think um, that was the, the decision I made. And that's what I went forward doing. For you, do you enjoy the process of researching a subject better than an overall topic? Because again, as Jim mentioned earlier, you did the three books about the history of modern American wrestling, if you want to put it that way, the NWA, Titan Sports, everything, and of course the uh, Death of the Territories. But now you've done Buddy Rogers, now you've done Ric Flair. What do you prefer? Do you prefer a biography or do you prefer an individual topic or a series of topics, an overall theme? Yeah, that's a great. I, that's a great question. I, I think that at this stage, um, I really do enjoy writing biographies. I mean, I like getting into you know focusing on a subject matter and really trying to immerse myself in their their life and learning about everything that they have done and uh, really getting to the core of a subject. And I, I 
Uh, I actually have written several books on uh, some baseball players as well, Ty Cobb, Shoeless Joe Jackson. And I think I got the bug when I wrote those books and then it transitioned to, of course, my book on Buddy Rogers, which I loved working on. It was just a, a book where I could just, you know, you, you, you really want to learn everything you can about that individual. And uh, the same went with this Ric Flair book. And it, it presents challenges, of course, um, maybe writing about a subject matter or a theme. You know, you could do things a little bit differently. But with a biography, there are certain rules and guidelines that you kind of have to follow. But I really enjoy doing that. And, um, you know, I, it was something that I, I really, you know, I felt that I, I could do well and, and present the story. And I uh, enjoy doing. Hey, Tim, you, you glossed over something a second ago, but you did write a book on Shoeless Joe Jackson for all the wrestling but non-baseball fans out there. The 1919 White Sox, Black Sox scandal. Uh, Brian, I know that's something near and dear to your heart, but I saw the book, read the book, and even though I'm not a baseball aficionado, it's a famous, it's a scandal. It has organized crime, it has victims, it has pathos, it has everything. That was a great book too. So you're not just, you're not just plumbing the wrestling well. You're going for all the sports. Hey Tim, Thank should, you, Jim. Hey, hey Tim, should Shoeless Joe Jackson be in the Hall of Fame? I, you know, part, big part of me says, yes. Uh, big part of me says that, uh, he, he really was, uh, uh, his, I, I want to say and do this delicately, his education wasn't the best. He wasn't the smartest guy. I think he got roped into something that he probably realized later that he was in over his head, but I think his baseball statistics stamp it themselves. And I think he should definitely be given consideration. Well, there you go. Well, is that what you wanted to hear, Brian? I wanted Are to hear you his answer. the shoeless Joe charge? I'm not leading the charge, and I will not give my uh, thoughts on this matter. I don't want to sway any of the potential voters out there. But Did Tim, your grandfather, did you, did grandfather last lose any money in that scandal? No, no, he had nothing to do with that. Rothstein, you have to talk to. Tim, the book goes into a lot of detail about WCW in the 90s, specifically when Ric Flair returned. They really needed him. He got along with Bischoff early on. He's the one who connected Bischoff with Hogan. He was booking right when things started to at least creatively turn around. If not, he actually, he was also doing the house shows when the house show business started turning around, him and Randy Savage. But during that period of time, Ric Flair has talked about having confidence issues. We all know the stories of the way Bischoff degraded him in front of the locker room. There were lawsuits. Your research. And everything you looked at and putting this book together, what can you say about Ric Flair's importance to WCW in the 90s? Well, he was the backbone. I mean, there was a lot of guys like Sting and, and that were really the foundation of the company. I think Ric Flair was just uh, one of the key players throughout that time period, in spite of the fact that when Hogan came aboard, he was kind of pushed aside and uh, there was a kind of a transition to this new kind of um, basis for what they were building the promotion around. But even so, even all the times they buried flair with the, with the wacky angles and the, the forced retirement. And then uh, even after, um, you know, he, he had the issue with, with Bischoff and came back, they did a heart attack angle and he was in the mental hospital for a while. I think the ratings at the time always reflected a spike when flair was on TV and, even though they wanted to build this new blood and this, the, the young, they wanted to build up the younger talent, 
Flair was always consistent. He was a consistent draw. And I feel like had they just utilized him correctly, he would have been an aid in building and turning things around. But instead, they were just destined to fail, and they, they continuously ran these angles that didn't make any sense, and they were hurting Flair rather than utilizing them to the, to the best of, of their ability. Uh, it, it's amazing that he was able to get through this, and it is completely understandable that he had self-confidence uh, self issues uh, because of just the way he was being used. And for a legend like him at the time, there were much better ways to, to utilize him. Hey, Tim, have you noticed in doing research on so many books of wrestling history from the 30s on up and then somewhat of modern day, as you were mentioning, the 90s and, and on, those kind of things started happening when it moved away from the guy who made the creative decisions. Also, the money was coming straight out of his pocket or going straight into his pocket. When it became the guys making the creative decisions were getting paid like everybody else and it didn't matter what the bottom line was, you got shit like, well, we don't care if he does ratings. We're going to bury him in the desert. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, I, you know, that's one of the weird things about professional wrestling and its evolution is that you, some, some of these guys throughout history have, have attained power. And uh, with the ego and the, the, the power struggle, I would say that um, the, the wrestling has suffered and wrestling fans have suffered as a result. I mean, what could have been, what should have been, why this, didn't this happen? I mean, how many times have we looked back at wrestling history and these major moments where, you know, things kind of, you know, the, the spike of wrestling's popularity in the late nineties, I mean, how, can they destroy that? How did they ruin what was something that was so great and turn it into, uh, you know, just destroy wrestling's value at that point? I mean, it was there was a money value there. I mean, you really found a way to 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 turn away what was a gold, a new golden age. And yeah, it was all uh, the bad decision making and and power plays and egos, and it's just I, I still can't understand it. Hey, Tim, what would have happened if Jim had been able to get Ric Flair into the building that time for the WWF pay-per-view in Charlotte? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think a lot of heads would have exploded. I, I think it would have been uh, an amazing uh, for some instances, but I think uh, Flair probably would have paid the price on the other end. But I, I think uh, <laughs> I, I think Jim was going in the right direction. I think that would have been a great a great thing for wrestling at the time, at least. Well, see, we actually, we had a loophole in that, it, I can't remember exactly now, it's been almost 30 years, but what Rick's contract status was, you may know better than I, that was the period of time he was on the outs, it was the pay-per-view in Greensboro, North Carolina that the WWE did where we, it, it had been 12 years since Starcade 86, and we finally beat the gate record that we had set there, but um, the deal was Reed had just won that grade school wrestling tournament, right? He was still in grade school at that point in time, yeah, right? In 1998. Amateur, yeah. Yeah. And he yeah. won some sort of amateur title. Yeah. And what was going to happen was that after one of the matches, suddenly people would see Ric Flair and his son Reed walk into the arena and come sit in the front row. And the announcers would say, well, ladies and gentlemen, we've got a wrestling champion from the state of North Carolina that has just joined us. And we'd like to interview him here right now. And they'd go and they'd interview Reed with Rick sitting right next to him, not saying oh, a fucking wow. word. That, that was the been, idea. Yeah. That would have been classic. I mean, yeah. 
And so and what was Flair's attorney at the time? Was that when he was using John Taylor? I believe so. Yeah. If it, Jory and Taylor in Atlanta. Attorney. Yeah, but exactly. It, it, so the deal was I was in Vince's office in the Greensboro Coliseum. Vince couldn't get on the phone because he wasn't going to plausible deniability. He's not talking to Ric Flair, right? Now I'm talking to my friend, Ric Flair, that I talk to on a regular basis, who's circling the Greensboro Coliseum in the limos in the limo with the fucking phone in the limo back when they had those talking to alternately me and John Taylor in Atlanta about whether or not he should actually go in and do it. <laughs> and then finally, they say, you know, we think you might be okay, but it might not be worth it. And they turned around and went back to Charlotte. I was like, Newman. <laughs> Well, yeah, I think a lot of heads would have exploded for sure had you gotten that one. And it would have been a classic moment for, for wrestling. Uh, I think there was a lot on the line, but that would have been a, a beautiful uh, scenario for sure. <laughs> Kim, is there anything you really wanted to know that you couldn't find out or anything that now that the book has been published just continues to frustrate you or just something that in your research it couldn't come to, a, to an answer on? That is a really great question. Um, to be honest, I, I, I'm going to say that I really got fortunate with this book that uh, due to the pandemic, there was a lot of trouble getting court documents. And I knew getting certain court documents out of the state of North Carolina were imperative to my research. I mean, they were, they were just, it was, I needed to bounce things off them. I needed to find dates. I needed to find the exact wording of certain situations and uh, there was just it was impossible to get court documents during the pandemic. And once uh, the documents, uh, once the courthouses started opening up and they started to, to kind of lighten up on the, the rules and the regulations that they, they had, the stringent rules that they had in place. I, I at the last minute, within three months of my book being due, I was able to get probably 2000 court documents out of <laughs> out of Mecklenburg. And uh, one of the one of the documents was his. The, the divorce records from his first wife with Leslie. And within that opened up a whole floodgate of, uh, of, of new information I did not have, financial records, information about his, his tax uh, debt at the time. Uh, I would say that I, I was very lucky to, to get that at the last second because had I not achieved that, and I'm, I say it achieved because it was a big success for me, had I not gotten that, I, I think the book would have been very different. I think I would have been at a, a, a big loss for a lot. So I think I lucked out. And I, again, luck is, is a imperative word there. Uh, but uh, I really was able to get what I needed to to close this book up and finish it the right way. Oh, oh, oh. back to is, you, is Jim. Back to me. <laughs> <laughs> I was engrossed in the questions Brian was asking you. Well, speaking of wrapping up the book in the right way, it is the last real world champion, the legacy of nature boy, Ric Flair. It's by Tim Hornbaker. It is published by ECW press. Don't let the name fool you folks. Heyman's got nothing to do with it. Um, and uh, Tim, you can, obviously this book is out now, correct? Has it been released or it's about to be it's released? Gonna or be, it's going to be uh, formally. I think some people have gotten deliveries. I don't know how, but it's supposed to be formally released on September 12th. So it's definitely a, a couple days off, but it's coming out very soon. And where can they, if, again, I've said this so many times, there's so many great books about wrestling and so many different people have written about this territory or that star. But if you want 
to know the history of professional wrestling, at least in the United States, your trilogy, the NWA, Capital Sports, and Death of the Territories, is the place to start. Where do they get those if those are still available? Jim, I appreciate that. Yes, you can uh, probably still pick them up at any major bookseller, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or you can go to ecwpress.com. Um, those books should be readily available. And, um, yes, I, I appreciate your words, Jim. And if you can ever find a box or two that falls off the truck, I'll be glad to put them up at jimcornet.com. But I, you know, I don't want to mess well, with the yeah. big boys. I would love to work with you on that. That would be <laughs> an honor. You know, that would be great. We could figure that out. Uh, and I, I'll give you, uh, at least 10% of all your business. Anyway, <laughs> hey, Brian, uh, have <laughs> I was about to say, Brian, close her up. Hey, Tim, what are you working on next? Well, I, I kind of have a, a big exclusive for you, uh, gentlemen, today. Uh, at this stage of, of any project, uh, I usually uh, I'm, I'm thinking about my next book and, and, and got in my head trying to figure out what is going to be my next project. Uh, for me personally, though, the last few years have been very challenging, and I've dealt with some serious health issues that have kind of set me back a little bit. Uh, so I, I, the, this announcement that I, I kind of want to say that is that I'm going to step back from, from writing and, and research for, for a little while to kind of focus more on my, my family and my health. And uh, I'm not saying that this is a, a retirement or anything. I'm just saying that for the, for the time being, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take, take a little time to, 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 to rebuild and, and to uh, recover a little bit. And I, I think there will be a, another book on the horizon, but for the time being, I, I think I just need some some time off. Well, I don't. You didn't clear this with me, Tim. And as a selfish prick, and speaking for another selfish prick, in Brian, just your health and your family is nowhere near as important as our knowledge and enjoyment. <laughs> yeah. This is a great negotiating tactic, Tim. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> it, 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 get well. And happy soon and hurry back is all we've got to say, because we can't do without these books for the rest of our life. We learn so much about wrestling from these books. That's right. Thank you so much, guys. And I appreciate all the support. You guys have been great and always, you know, uh, made time for me and and always had a kind word. I really appreciate it. And I do look forward to coming back. I do have some ideas, but like I said, uh, first things first. And uh, when I do make my big announcement for my next book, I definitely will give it to you, gentlemen. In the the meantime, kayfabe, the four-part series on the Midnight Express and Jim Cornette till later (laughs) on. We have an official launch. I got you. I got you, Jim, for sure. Well, gentlemen, with that, we'll return to the drive-thru after this short commercial timeout. You know what that means, Jim. Yeah, it means somebody's beating on your hubcaps again. No, it's a commercial timeout. It's another commercial timeout. And, of course, Tim Hornbaker... He said he may not do another biography, but we know the truth. He's right now working on the biography of Felix Helix, the man who brought the world Helix mattresses. Was that old Mr. Helix's name Felix Helix? I didn't realize that. That's what I've heard. I thought his name was Grover Cleveland Helix. But nevertheless, our friends at Helix Sleep would have been great partners for Ric Flair. You just heard about that schedule, folks. You heard about the sleepless nights that Ric Flair spent on the road. Well, if he just had a good quality Helix sleep mattress to carry around with him. I know Flair many times associated with a lot of women that carried a mattress around on their back, but he never carried one himself. And if he'd have taken it to Tokyo and to Auckland, New Zealand and to 
the stairmaster places this the stair well he had the stairmaster no have it on his back on the stairmaster oh he could tie he could put the tie the mattress to the stairmaster that was already on his back no the stairmaster's not on his back i'm saying tie the mattress to his back and continue doing his stairmaster workout but he would have the mattress on his back he could just fall back off the stairmaster and land on it well, folks, it's a whole lot easier for you. All you got to do is go to helixsleep.com because you won't have to carry a Stairmaster. You won't have to have any ropes or pulleys or trusses or some method of supporting all this. You won't have to even try to figure out how to walk straight down the street with all of this weight on your back. No, because Helix will do all the work for you. All you got to do is tell them what kind of mattress you like. Do you want to sleep on your back, on your side? Are you big and bulbous or are you tall and skinny? And and uh, uh, kids, your your kids, give them a lot of information on your kids. What time they get off from school, the route they no, take home. They don't want that information and there's no reason anyone should be volunteering that information. Well, but just answer the simple questions they ask at helixsleep.com and they will tell you which of their 20 unique mattresses, including the award-winning Lux Collection and the newly released Helix Elite Collection, is perfect for you and your scrawny little frame that just wants to get a good night's sleep, but you feel every night when you wake up in the morning like you've been sleeping on a sack of cobblestones because you got one of these store-bought mattresses. Who knows who or what has been done on that mattress before those shady-looking individuals bring it to you and then walk into your home with their muddy feet. No more of that. You order the Helix Sleep Mattress. It is delivered to your home in a box that is not unwieldy so that one person can situate it, and then you just open it up and it breathes to life. And you can sleep on it for 100 nights. Do whatever you want on it for 100 nights. We're not going to judge. And then if you don't like it, send that stinky, DNA-ridden mattress back to them, they'll no. give your money back. Let's be honest. Most people don't have these problems where they leave the mattress in disarray after just a month. So a hundred nights. What kind of month is that? Is that a month on the planet? Oh, is it, is it a hundred nights? I'm sorry. <laughs> no wonder you said always, it was a month. I'm sorry. No wonder you're always running behind. No, that's three <laughs> months and a little more. Last time I checked. I'm on Hawaii and Ryan time. They come with a 10 to 15 year warranty, depending on the model of the mattress. And since everybody sleeps differently, you may be the odd duck and not like yours, or maybe you weigh 800 and 900 pounds and you're going to crush the poor thing, whatever it's covered. So all you got to do right now, if you want to lay your weary head down on a model with memory foam to provide optimum <laughs> pressure relief. Or a more responsive foam to cradle your body like it's a little baby up in the tree. <laughs> All you got to do, I've mentioned this before, is go to helixsleep.com and use the code helixsleep.com slash JCE. Because right now, Helix is offering 20% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com slash JCE because it's their best offer yet, and it will not last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. Well, it doesn't start now. It starts as soon as you make the effort to go and get one of these fine things. And with the two free pillows, for heaven's sake, you won't have to use your wife's purse or your dog's bed to 
prop your head up on so that you don't have a headache when you wake up in the morning. Helix has got you all covered. Helixsleep.com slash JCE. Now, what time does your children get off from school and arrive home, and what is the proper route for them to take so we can measure them for a mattress? Mind your business, creepy grandpa. Don't be asking questions like that. That's inappropriate. Just trying to get your children a nice gift for the holidays. They already have Helix Sleep mattresses. They love them. Well, I'll get another one. That way you you have put them on top of one, put the other one on top of them. You yeah. got a little child sandwich. Why don't you get one and tie it to yourself and go on a Stairmaster? See how that works. Yeah, why don't you get one tied to your back and go downtown? <laughs> Just anywhere downtown. <laughs> Just anywhere downtown. People will find you. All right. <laughs> Helix Sleep, what's the promo code again? HelixSleep.com slash JCE if you want to be found downtown or even if you don't. Or have a good night's sleep in your own home. Helix Sleep. You can do that too. Jim. Brian. Seems like everyone involved at AEW could use a good night's sleep. Boy, or maybe some decaf. More CM Punk news. Are you kidding me? Well, I mean, it's minor news, but it's still interesting. Fightful has a story, apparently. Let me see what they say here, because a lot of people are sending this to us. Apparently, AEW is collecting statements and interviews about the nature of what happened with CM Punk and Jack Perry. <laughs> they're collecting them, then they're going to have the statements graded and slabbed for collectors. Also, and here's the hottest bootleg on the market, there's footage of the incident. No! There were cameras all over Wembley. <laughs> also, when, af after the when incident... When does this get aired on their program instead of the shit they showed us last night? Punk and Tony had an altercation that was described as contentious, but that's all anyone knows. So, let's just recap this real briefly. So, they fly him over from Chicago to London. He ends up at Heathrow Airport on Saturday morning. The phone number they have given him for his car service is no good. He's got no car there to take him to his hotel or to the stadium. He can't call him. Apparently, from what we have been told by a variety of fans and people over there on the scene, the Uber situation was not tenable in London that day with 80,000 of these raven wrestling maniacs. So he, he has to ride, as they call it, the tube, the under, the subway, to his hotel. I guess he was going first and then to the stadium. And there are pictures on the internet. He got lost. Imagine that. You're in God. I assume he's probably never ridden the tube before because when he was in London for the WWE, they pretty much carry their guys back and forth, right? So he gets lost, and there's pictures on Twitter of fans helping him find his way and sitting next to him on the tube. Then he, he gets there to the building, and right before he goes out for the opening match on the pay per view, he has to watch this little childish indie nitwit this little fucking vienna sausage dicked moron that used to hang around with fucking chimpanzees swinging in the trees make mockery of him on camera and the the what he was asked to do by the company a few weeks ago remember it wasn't like he just of his own volition came up and said hey jungle jack off we ain't gonna do that ain't gonna be happening they came to him 
We've heard Tony Schiavone. We've heard the producer of the television. We've heard people from the office. We've heard a variety of people came to him and said, hey, can you tell this guy not to do this because he won't listen to us? Now that same nitwits out there in front of 80,000 people and all the pay-per-view audience putting the mouth on Punk's efforts that he was asked to do to begin with by the company. Hey, I got a question I don't know the answer to, and I don't know if you would either, but when Jack Perry did that, did he know Punk was there? How late was Punk getting there? Did he know Punk was there, or was Punk well, so no, late no, that he wasn't on. even... No, hold on, because it was the ma the last match on Zero Hour, and Punk was the first match on the pay-per-view, and it's odd, but Punk was at Gorilla. He'd been there, and he knew that he was going to be the next match, and he was probably going to be in the vicinity of a fucking monitor. That's why he did it. And he figured his little fucking Cucamonga friends in the treehouse, the boys club, would take up for him and prevent any repercussions, because there are none repercussions for anything there. Or did he think Punk wouldn't do anything because Tony Khan would be right there if he was a gorilla? Well, he probably thought that too. <laughs> but I don't know why he would think that, because everybody does everything when Tony's around. Sometimes they're doing things with Tony, from what we've heard from disgruntled employees. So then the fucking prick comes through the goddamn curtain. Hey, you got a problem with me? You got something to say to me? Yeah, I just said it out there. What are you going to do about it? Well, here. And now we find out he didn't ghoul. I thought he just snatched the idiot around the fucking neck. Apparently, he actually front face locked him. <laughs> F-A-F-O, but now we've, then the story has been uh, expanded to, they knocked over some shit at the table because that's where Tony was sitting, so apparently Tony was there. I don't know why they're collecting statements. If Tony was there, what, what he saw is the only thing that matters and what he says the only thing should be the only thing that goes. So Yeah, what does Tony say, really? If he's sitting there when this happens and they get him broke up, if it's me, I'm like, you, what's the fucking issue? And to hear his story, you, what's the fucking response? And whichever story that I think is fucking sounds more legitimate, I'm going to believe because I'm sitting right there and I'm going to boot the other one out of the fucking building and the company. Who are the investigators? Well, fucking Dewey, Cheatham, and Howe have opened up a, an investigative branch, apparently. I don't, like I said, Clouseau could be on the case. There were no investigators last time in the investigation. There were no independent fucking detectives on this case. It was, okay, we're going to talk to a few people, and then we're going to fucking goddamn just wait until everybody forgets about it, we hope. That was the... That was pretty much the goddamn deal. It was the Khan family attorneys in Illinois that were doing the investigation, wasn't it? But yes. We're going to talk to everybody, and then we're going to do nothing about it, and we're going to see if everybody will forget about it. That's what happened. Well, so I, I doubt very seriously if we're going to get any earth-shattering results from this investigation, but I think the footage... Yeah, what does that tell? What does that say that the investigation would have to expand upon? So the the owner of the whole company was sitting in the proximity of the issue, and they have it on camera 
We need more information. If we only knew what happened, it's like it's like putting together the goddamn Kennedy assassination. We've got so little to go on. We know what dipshit did on camera out there. We know what Punk did when he came through the curtain. Boss man was sitting right there, and they got it on video. We have a Jack Perry update. He's uh, doing nothing and brushing his hair. Well, that does take a while. He's got lots One of One thing time. you can say about the kid is he's got, he's got a lot of hair. Do they reinstate Punk before the pay-per-view? If they have half a fucking mind, at a, remember I've, I put the qualifier if on there, he's got to be out of his mind. He's going to kill Chicago. He's going to kill Chicago. If these people, they might not have, not have thought he was going to be on Wednesday night on Dynamite when they bought tickets, but for the people who bought tickets for Collision, Punk's show, and didn't they get screwed out of, they got screwed out of him one time before, didn't they, or did they? In, in this whole situation. Oh, I'm not sure. I mean, the AEW fans, uh, they take a lot of screwing. And- uh, but but nevertheless, if he's not on collision and definitely he's not on the pay-per-view, and the, when the people bought the tickets, it was after Punk had returned, correct? Where they had every reason to believe he would be on these programs. Right. And now if he ain't, they're going to set the seats on fire. I'm... T- they- what has happened jesus christ what has happened to people's minds uh and i mean and that's a joking line obviously but people have done that in the past one time they were bringing jimmy valiant back to memphis he hadn't been there in a year handsome jimmy valiant was one of the most over guys in the fucking territory and they advertised it he was in the main event and goddamn that's when he had a health issue and he passed out in the charlotte airport before he was on the way to fly to memphis and didn't make the show and guess what they did brian they set the fucking seats on fire so i mean vader anoki vader anoki they didn't set the seats on fire they threw him into the fucking ring got banned from the building (laughs) yes rest not vader anoki but all of wrestling got banned from the building you know, I'm just saying it's insane to me. So what if he front face locked a preliminary fucking boy? The preliminary boy also ran his fucking mouth and deserved it. But God damn it. The fucking main event guy in his hometown, you're running a pay-per-view and you're going to lead them to believe that he's going to be there up until five days before the show where they don't even know a card to begin with anyway. And then you pull him. They're going to kill Chicago. They won't be able to go back there on a fucking bet. Well, Jim, that is the latest update in the world of AEW drama, the CM Punk Jack Perry file this week. If anything else happens on the show, we will keep everyone informed. But you watched some wrestling this week, and I watched some of it. Well, you got you got an excuse, Brian. You were going to let you out of it this time because you are injured. You did have to take a day off of work to go get an MRI, you're limping around like Clubfoot McGee coming down the hallway to strangle somebody. I was working on the six-hour experience. Yeah. And I didn't well, know if I could add the three-hour, a different kind of experience. Is that. is that like the four-hour energy and a six-hour experience? Um, 
Anyway, you didn't get a chance to peruse Raw this past Monday night, August 28th. I did, and this is not going to be an in-depth, detailed report, but I do have some observational thoughts to make about the program. Would you like to hear them? Yes, your observational thoughts. Is this like your interpretive dance? Yes, it, I'm going to uh, gesticulate and finger point and prissy prance and <laughs> fancy dance. And they were in Memphis over there at the uh, at the FedEx Forum. And by the way, the best part was not shown on the air, but during one of the commercial breaks, this was on Twitter. Uh, Kevin Owens and Sami Zayn introduced Lawler, who came out and waved at the crowd and smiled and everything. It got a giant ovation. People stood up and cheered for quite some time. I mean, it was it was a little over ten years ago. He came back, and got a giant ovation after he fucking died on their air. I mean, he's it's amazing. He beats Death's ass on a variety of occasions and comes back and gets an even bigger round of applause. He'll never not be over in Memphis, and probably to any of the the audience. Nice to see him. First time I think we've seen him, other than a video he released after he first got ill, or yeah. I don't know how we phrase it. At a stroke, yeah. After he he first had a stroke, had a that's stroke. right, that's yeah. what it was. But uh, he looked good, he hadn't shaved, so it was the first time you've seen him with some facial hair since like 1988. It's the first time I've seen him uh, with gray facial hair since then, <laughs> that time. That's the first time ever in his life. He's never had a gray hair, that's why he started shaving his chest, it was too much trouble to dial the hair. Why didn't they air this on TV? It was such a nice moment. I have no fucking... They've thought, well, shit. People might want to watch that. We don't want to put that on TV. He was one of the hosts of that show for, what, <laughs> 20 years? I, I, I can't explain it. Well, they only had three hours, though. So it, just, it was a little tight on time. Anyway, the opening match was Sami Zayn and Damian Priest. And with no seconds at ringside, Priest said he's going to do this by himself. Sammy's, I'll leave Kevin out of it. And here's the thing. I'm going to talk about the, the match blow by blow. But it was a nice wrestling match. And here's the problem. The WWE talent, top to bottom, have better fundamentals. They're more professional. They're more serious because they take indie wrestlers and train them. And they have guidance and structure. And that can be bad, but it can also be good in terms of the WWE, all the programs, they're too overproduced. They're synthetic. They don't have a feel that anything could, that anything really violent is going on, even when it looks violent and that anything could break loose and happen, except when Brock Lesnar is around, then you get some danger. It's not dangerous. It's not indie-rific. The style they do is they're taking care of the athletes, but I'm not even talking about the style of wrestling as much as just the style of how they present it. So as I said, the WWE overproduced, synthetic, homogenized, and AEW is exactly the opposite. Anything can happen, even if it's not supposed to, because most of these guys don't know what the fuck they're doing. And you're watching a goddamn car wreck in front of your eyes that never stops piling up so they're two completely different sides of the coin and for long-term business obviously the wwe side is much more valuable but i think that's the problem i think aew gets all the people that want to see violent legitimate 
gritty wrestling, but instead they just get to see a bunch of fuck-ups over and over, constantly hurting themselves, and they kind of let that substitute. Does that make any sense, what I'm saying? It makes some sense. So anyway, um, so they, they had a nice match, as I said, Sammy and Priest, and then J.D. McDonough shows up at ringside and pulls Sammy's leg, and Priest hits a choke slam, one, two, three. Just like that. And then Priest shoved J.D. McDonough down and said, stay out of my business, and he left. And then Owens came in, and he and Sammy beat up J.D. McDonough. Yeah. Did you know that Matt Riddle and Drew McIntyre are a tag team now, but Riddle is annoying Drew already with his being him? And he basically, he annoys the fans and the viewers in kind of the same fashion. <laughs> but Riddle's already kind of like, oh, Jesus Christ, rolling his eyes at him. McIntyre is. Uh, or McIntyre is at Riddle is what I'm trying to say. You missed the Miz. The Miz came out dressed as L.A. Knight with L.A. Knight's music and the whole nine yards and the vest and the sunglasses. And he did L.A. Knight's promo, and it wasn't bad as a parody of a babyface by a heel in the wrestling business. This was not bad. And then he stripped off the costume and cut his own heel promo on L.A. Knight, who he's going to be facing at payback in like three days. <laughs> so <laughs> these have been the most underpromoted pay-per-views in the history of pay-per-view. But Miz did a good promo. I will... Give him a little golf clap for that. He seemed fired up. Sorry you missed it. You like him anyway. I do, and maybe I will seek that out. Hey, quick question for you. What do you think it says, the success WWE has had for a while now with their big events, AEW coming out of Wembley? The success with no card at all built up. Is the argument, this is what wrestling could be? Just, you want to be a part of the thing and you go? I mean, is anyone arguing that these shows would have done less fans, not more fans, if things had been built up or logically laid out? Is the business model like this is the proper way now to build into a big event? No, I think... Leave people guessing until the last minute? Wembley was an aberration. I don't think that the WWE is going to set any records with this pay-per-view this weekend. And I don't suggest that... I, also, to be honest, whoever buys the AEW pay-per-view this weekend in Chicago, we're going to find out what the fucking bottom number is of who's going to order AEW pay-per-views just because it's AEW. Wembley was an outlier in that, as we've said, the fans made it an event just because they were going to be there, just because it was going to be in that building, just because it was the first time they'd ever been in that country. Then it became a, a gathering thing and a travel thing for all those fans. You can't do that on a regular basis or in in a place where you've been before or whether it's it's no big deal to go to the arena itself or all the conditions were right for that. No, I still believe to get people excited about something, to watch it, to purchase it, to stream it, to do whatever... They've got to know what it is, and they have to be interested in it. And I don't know whether they'd have done any less in Wembley if they'd have known the card ahead of time or not. They certainly wouldn't have done any more. It wasn't a 
I don't think a, a benefit the card to the show, but I don't think they would have done any less because of those conditions. But in another time, in another place, without the same context, I don't think it's a good idea to just say, buy these high-priced tickets and we'll give you a good card. Trust us. But like if all out, if AEW turns around and they say, this ended up doing much better than we thought, 150,000 buys coming after the weekend of the other pay-per-view, Labor Day weekend, does that encourage more of this? Or does that make them stop and say, you know, maybe we should try to make things more logical. We can make things bigger. That's the problem. Or just space them out or tell people what they're going to see or have a plan. Again, there's no reason you can't promote two events in the same week on television in two completely different countries. And the matches in Wembley could have had an effect. And I know some of them are starting to to have an effect, but I'm talking about you could have announced it at the start. MJF or Adam Cole will defend the AEW title against so-and-so. Blah, blah, blah. But, you know, I don't see how they can do 150,000 buys for a pay-per-view after people have just bought the goddamn allegedly biggest show of all time and seven days later they want you to buy another one and they're just going to start telling you what you're going to see after you've already spent the money last weekend. That's just... I know these people are dedicated, but how much money does a motherfucker have? Raw rolls on. So anyway, the Vikings wrestled the New Day while Drew and Riddle were watching at ringside. And one of the Vikings ran Kofi into Riddle and Drew in their laps and everybody took a bump. So Drew got up and started throwing chairs and threw one and hit fucking Woods in the head with it and sent him to the trainer's room. And then the Vikings leveled McIntyre and beat Kofi. And by the way, that match went through the nine o'clock hour, in case you're wondering. And then the judgment day was in the back. Finn and Priest are continuing to argue over J.D. Funko Pop. And I've just made note that Priest is really good at this. He speaks, he's got a man's voice, and he's got inflection and delivery. But then Rhea jumped in and told him, basically, get your shit together. Because I don't want to hear this. Me and Dom have our shit together. I was tired of hearing you guys natter at each other. She was the best promo in the group. I'm nominating Rhea Ripley for the new leader of Judgment Day if they kick Damian Priest out. Then they did the video tribute to Bray Wyatt, which was an incredible piece of work, but we talked about it on SmackDown. It was the same one. And then that's where Woods is hurt in the trainer's room, but Kofi comes out and says, I'm not mad at you, Drew. And they shake hands, and then Drew says he's mad at the Vikings. So the guy's carelessness hospitalized Kofi's partner, but he can't get mad about it. And then here came the Imperium. And Gunther does deal where he stands up on the announce desk and cuts the promo. And Gunther's uh, bone of contention is that the first man to beat him in over 500 days was Chad Gable. But he did it by count out. He didn't pin him. Gunther's still the champion. But Gable accomplished one thing. He pissed me off. And tonight, Chad Gable will not beat 
Kaiser Wilhelm over here, right? And suddenly Shush interrupts. And here comes Chad and Otis and Model Girl. And as I mentioned, his wrestling is great. And the people are taken to him now, but I hate the gimmick. And the problem becomes, now it's just that people are liking it when the the annoying little funny fuck that goes shoosh shows up and shooshes Gunther the pompous heel. That's funny. We can laugh at that. The Rock did comedic things, but they didn't laugh at the little funny guy. And a lot of people can pull off doing comedic things, but when this guy has been presented as this for so long and then they're reminding people of it while they're trying to use him seriously against Gunther, eh, he's wrestling seriously now, but he's acting like he's nine years old. So anyway, next week it's going to be Chad and Gunther for the Intercontinental title, so we got to watch that. No stipulation or anything? Not that I heard. Not that I want a stipulation, but just in terms of time limit or anything? Yes, no, just for the title. But in the meantime, they had Chad versus Kaiser Wilhelm here. And I like both those guys. Both guys can work. But it's the presentation, not only that I mentioned in the first match, but also that both of them have been presented as flunkies. And this match went through two breaks. And finally... Gable German, uh, the guy, and and Da Vinci, the other stooge, came in. DQ, it's the same fucking thing as they did 30 minutes ago, right? And then Otis came in. They got in a big fight. The heels kicked the shit out of Gable. Gunther got in and went for a powerbomb, and Gable rolled through it into an ankle lock. But then the heel stooges break that up, and Gunther powerbombs him. And he's laying, and they leave. So it's like watching the same thing over and over. Then the Bob Barker RIP video was some of his highlights, general managing Raw or whatever back in the day. But Michael Cole, I believe it was. They edited Jericho out of that. How about that? Well, and you know what? Jericho pitched a fit on Twitter. Well, how dare they edit me? Did he really? I didn't see that. Yes, yes. Oh, okay. that just go, it's something like, no, one of the fans said, how dare they edit Jericho out? And he retweeted it and said pettiness or something like that. The fucking guy's 100 years old. He's a beloved TV star. He dies. And all Jericho's worried about is whether he gets in the fucking video or not. Come on down. Go back on up. <laughs> but the, Bob, the, the comment by Michael Cole was, Bob Barker, this is a quote. I wrote this down. Bob Barker encapsulated the fun spirit of what WWE is all about. He got super sexual harassment a bunch of times. He sure did. <laughs> I didn't even think about that. <laughs> Diane Parkinson says he reminds me of Vince. But just that statement, the fun spirit of what we're all about, the fun, laugh at us. We're not about getting heat on the heels so the people want to kill them so they can see the baby face fucking get even. And a blah, we're not fucking presenting violence and emotion and retribution and betrayal and revenge. It's the fun spirit of what WWE is all of. No wonder nobody watches any of this shit anymore. Anywhere. So then you miss the entrance of Michael P.S. Hayes. Michael no, P.S. Hayes makes a big music entry. Oh, wait, wait, hold. 
Hold on, I'm being told it was Seth Franklin Rollins. God damn it, you got me. <laughs> he came and his hair looked like Michael's when he had just he'd he'd bleached it too much and hadn't put on enough conditioner. It was all out everywhere. And he's got the fucking suit on and he's dancing and prancing and cackling and singing. And then he's doing the promo. There's a world title match at Payback with him versus Shaky Nakamura. Seriously. And while Seth is doing the promo, the VTR pops up on the screen of, of Nakamura and he's, He's exercising and working out and training at the martial arts. The video made him look better than he does in person. And he was speaking a voiceover with English subtitles. And so then when that was over, Seth kept doing the promo until Shaky showed up looking like a bum under an overpass and laid him out and stood there and then left. Again, is if Nakamura's not 50, he looks every bit of it. And can anybody buy him as a credible challenger for the world title with his unscintillating performances that he's given up to this point? I think you tend to not like him a little more than the average fan. What am I missing? I also don't think Seth Rollins is all that scintillating as a world champion. I don't consider well, him a world champion. Doesn't I, did, like I didn't say we were dealing with goddamn... You know, Luthez here. I heard, and I didn't see it, that the video last week on Raw that they did with Nakamura was really good, but I didn't see it. I didn't see this either. I'm not interested in this match less because of Nakamura, more because of Rollins and his wild and crazy guy gimmick. I think it's a double whammy for me. But we'll move on. Rollins became the Americanized Nakamura. <laughs> So it's like watching like the Japan the original yeah, version. Nakamura comes out with the music and he's twitching and having an epileptic seizure. And then here comes Seth with different music. He's doing the same thing. I see where you're going with that. Well, anyway, speaking of ringers, Owens and Zane were in the back and they're tired of the judgment day. I'll have you know. And they have asked for and been granted a match official for payback. So they are announcing this match in a pre-tape on the Monday before the, the Saturday of the show. A Steel City street fight. Anything goes. No DQ. Lazy booking. With Owens and Zane against the Judgment Day. They're in Pittsburgh, I hope. They're in Pittsburgh. That's why <laughs> Steel City. Well, yeah, they what... <laughs> actually asked me, what do they call Pittsburgh? Because they're these two Canucks. They don't know. They've only got aluminum foil up in Canada. And Owens was more pissed at Judgment Day than the fans, I think, are here in this one. And then a match that I would have said I would like to see, Tommaso Ciampa versus Bronson Reed. And it, it, Reed, Tommaso's coming to the, to the ring. Reed jumps him in the aisleway. Tommaso fights back and kicks Reed's ass. And then they go to the break cold without even mentioning it. And the match had never started. So you're like, was that it? And then when they come back, the match is in progress. And I swear to God, it's like, how many? Again, the heel jumps the baby face. The baby face comes back and beats his ass. Then they come back in the match. And Reed's getting heat. 
And then Champa makes a comeback and picks up Reed and hits his fucking finish on him. The the white noise thing that that Seamus does, right? And it was a two count. And then Reed just took back over on the baby face again. And they slowed it down. And then suddenly, out of nowhere, Champa leaped up and got him in a crucifix. Grapevine his arm on one side and his other arm with the legs and hit it perfect and took him over and then lost him on the cover. But the referee counted anyway. One, two, three. That was it. You could do something with both of these guys, but apparently they don't want to. They're kind of in the spot on the card where the only people they can beat is each other. Sounds like I missed a lot. Uh, You missed Rhea and Dominic doing a live interview in the ring. With Rhea cutting a promo on Raquel Rodriguez Gonzalez de Molina Jr. That Rhea Ripley is not only one of the better female promos in the business, she's one of the better promos in the business. And the only question I had was, when are we going to lose her to Hollywood? Will she be able to become a wrestling Hall of Famer before the movies take her away? And then here came Raquel and kicked Rhea Ripley's ass. And she was distracted by Dominic so Rhea could take over, but she came back on Rhea and kicked her ass again. And the heels bailed out and left. Do you notice a pattern here? I do. I didn't see this, but I just want to say this in general. Rhea Ripley, who's one of the top five talents in the entire business, man or woman, her selling, when you said she got her ass kicked, I could visualize in my head Rhea bumping off Raquel. Her facial expressions while she's selling... She's so good. I'm looking, I'm looking forward to seeing the match to see what Ripley does with it. Raquel is big. She's got good size. She's not the smoothest uh, talent on the roster, but I think Ripley can do something with it. Then they did the Terry Funk tribute video again. And guess what the main event was of Monday Night Raw after we sat through two hours and 40 minutes of what I've just told you about. The main event, didn't you tell me already? It was, uh... No, I didn't. Oh. Um... Becky Lynch has not been on the show. Is it Becky Lynch? Yep. Do I win? Is that enough? Do I win? No, tell me what the main event was. Don't tell me one person that was in it. She didn't work with Trish. She wouldn't work with... uh, Had to be a Zoe Stark. You are correct. Falls count anywhere in the arena. No, <laughs> no it wasn't. No. Anything goes. Lazy booking. I did not know that either. And as soon as it started, they went under the ring and pulled out kendo sticks before the bell even rang. And I said, I am out of here. I don't, I've seen enough garbage wrestling from the guys to not have to watch garbage wrestling from the girls this week. So... In the process of zipping through to see if anything, certainly I said that couldn't be the main event, but it was, so I gave up on it. But they had chairs, and they were in the arena, and they had the kendo sticks, and the blah, 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 and all that stuff is what happened. And that was Raw. Well, that was Raw, and that's enough of Raw. Jim, before we move on from WWE, though, you want to preview, because I don't even know the card, Payback, which is, what day is this? Well, we're talking now on Thursday afternoon, and payback is Saturday night. So Saturday. we better get we better get to moving. <laughs> we better review before it happens. All right, this is the card that's announced so far according to Wikipedia. Let me just see if there's anything actually on WWE.com. Oh, here we go. Premier shows payback. 
This is a real clunky layout. All right, let's go back to Wikipedia, ladies and gentlemen. So, and again, another of the modern day problems, if you want to know what the card is for a major wrestling pay-per-view or premium live event, you have to go to Wikipedia because the promotion itself is not trying hard enough to tell you. All right, well, in a steel cage match, Becky Lynch versus Trish Stratus. Well, we've been waiting for this for quite some time, haven't we? <laughs> I'm pretty sure this was probably going to be where Becky, you know, emerges triumphant. And I would think Trish came back for a limited run after she's been retired this long. So are they going to transition maybe to Becky and Zoe? And Zoe can carry the banner for Trish or whatever, but I, I think we should bet on Becky in this one, don't you? You would think, unless this is continuing until Survivor Series or until how the are they going to get after a fucking cage? Series. After a, well, then they're going to have a war games with just Becky against Trish, or I'd watch exploding ring. Well, we will see what happens. Zoe Stark. I don't know if the steel cage, depending on what kind of cage, or if there are remote controls like Ole Anderson had for RoboCop. <laughs> We'll see what happens. For the World Heavyweight Championship, the champion Seth Franklin Rollins versus Shinsuke Nakamura. Well, I just kind of let my feelings be known when we were talking about the segment on Raw. But again, Seth is one of the biggest guys, stars in the company. I recognize that. I know he's trying real hard to make the world title number three seem like something, but everybody views Roman Reigns as the champion in the WWE. And then Nakamura, this is just a run. He's a tomato can to run Seth Rollins' record up, to defend the thing over and over so that it might someday turn into a real title, Pinocchio. But in the meantime, geez, I don't want to see this match because I'd never want to see Nakamura because... The only thing I think when I see him is, my God, will Japanese grandfather get hurt? He looks frail. He looks oh, come sickly. On. He looks infirm. I don't get it. But Jim, the next match, <laughs> I don't think he looks that bad, but the next match for the Women's World Championship, oh, geez. the champion Rhea Ripley oh. versus Raquel Rodriguez. I thought it was one of the other women's titles. Well, and we just talked about that on the segment on Raw also. Um, Raquel Gonzalez has size. She's impressive. She can move Ripley around. She's not as smooth as maybe she will be one day with a little bit more experience, but Ripley is so good that I can't wait to see what she does with this and how they put it together and, and what Rhea does to, you know, to, to make the thing. Because, I th you know... Part of Ripley's appeal is that she is bigger and can move the other girls around and et cetera. But in this case, you know, they may want to see her get a taste of her own medicine. Can Raquel Gonzalez hold her end up? We shall see. I predict also a Rhea Ripley victory. For the WWE United States Championship, the champion Rey Mysterio versus Austin Theory. Oh, and is every match for a title? No, the next match is a singles match. Well, thank God. You know, uh, I would love to say they're going to put it back on theory, but I don't think they're going to do that. I think they're saving this for whatever's going to go on with Mysterio and Escobar, which is yet to be determined. So I think that 
Ray will retain, Escobar will be involved in some fashion, and uh, hopefully won't make Theory look too bad in the process. In a big singles match, L.A. Knight versus The Miz. Okay. I'm actually interested in a Miz match because this thing, it's going to tear the house down because they're going to be into L.A. Knight. Both guys are going to probably be working hard. L.A. Knight because he's trying to get over and Miz because he's trying to prove a point. And I, I bet they'll do something interesting. And I predict an L.A. Knight victory because that's the one thing. There's not much doubt Miz has been beaten by everybody in the company except the cameraman. And I'm wondering about whether that was just the cameraman probably did it, but there was nobody to film it. And finally, Jim, in a Steel City street fight for the undisputed WWE Tag Team Championship, the champions, Kevin Owens and Sami Zayn versus the Judgment Day, Finn Balor and Damian Priest. Anything goes. No disqualification. Lazy booging. Again, it's going to be a nice tag team match. Owens and Zayn are over. It, it, this is obviously going to be, I would think, be Priest and Finn uh, representing the Judgment Day, which will then lead to J.D. Funko Pop probably being involved. And I expect Zayn and Owens to retain in this instance. And that is the full lineup for WWE Payback. Obviously, no Roman Reigns or Bloodline. That is SmackDown only, Oof. I guess. Well, people are going to be saving their money for the following night. <laughs> well, I guess we'll talk about that in a little bit because, once again, there was more wrestling to watch because there always is. AEW Dynamite coming to you from the town that I forgot. What town were they in? <laughs> Where Chicago! were they? Chicago! Chicago. How you can I forget the second you, city? No, you ain't gonna get... Jace, leave that in. I didn't say take he it out. Leave it in. fucking town. Every arena looks the same. What do you want? <laughs> Chicago! Chicago! That toddling town or whatever. The second city. Sweet home Chicago. You know what the first city is? New York. How about that? You know, that actually is a little trivia note. A lot of people never understood why it was Second City TV and they called Chicago the second city because New York was, the, it actually wasn't the first city chronologically, but it was the biggest city. And in Chicago was the next biggest city, hence the second city. And where was Second City TV produced? In, a, in Canada. Toronto. So it wasn't yeah. even in Chicago. <laughs> But they came from there, didn't they? Because the they had the second city improvisational That's right. business going on. Can we just talk about anything instead of this program any longer? I think we can keep doing this. You know, and it was kind of a merger of the people from the Harvard Lampoon and then eventually <laughs> National Lampoon. And they got together with the people doing Second City. Some went to Saturday Night Live. The rest went to SCTV. What if those roles had been switched? Instead of John Belushi, we had John Candy. On national TV in 76. Instead of Chevy Chase, we had, what was that other fucking fellow? Joe Flaherty. Joe Flaherty. Sadly, I know who that other fucking fellow Yeah, that other fucking fellow. (laughs) And then, and where did Fridays fit in all this? Fridays was ABC's attempt to. I know what it was. I'm just saying, where did it fit in all of this? It was forgotten, but poor. Friday nights. Poor Michael Richards. Larry David. Larry David. It was, it was a. An incubator for the Seinfeld staff. 
That was a lot of, there was, I don't know about a lot, but that was also people from the Groundlings, which was the Los Angeles version of Second City in a lot of ways. I thought that was that historically black college in Louisiana. No, that's Grambling. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, this is, to the Groundlings. <laughs> this is, this is my show, but this is your dynamite review, my friend. Well, the opening match, and again, folks, it's, it's not even a fever dream now or an acid trip. It's just, it's a rib. It's a rib on somebody. We're just not sure who. The opening match on Dynamite on Wednesday night, August 30th, was the plumber Moxley versus Commander. Commander, who came out in his Mayan wedding dress. I don't know what the fuck he's wearing. <laughs> And you've seen that when they get the cakes, when they get the cakes for the Mayan wedding and they're on top of the temple where, and there's Quetzalcoatl with his bride. Where have you seen this? I well, in all the fine Mayan bakeries around the area. You gotta, you gotta go in one and, and try it out. Anyway, they showed people who paid to get into the arena. This match with a straight face. I know TV's free. But Commander's a foot shorter and 50 pounds lighter than even Moxley, who looks like an emaciated fucking sailor that's been washed up on a deserted island six months ago with only a fucking soccer ball to keep him company. Message in a bottle. <laughs> so the exciting finish to this contest was Moxley gave him a pile driver and got a two count. Then got on him and gave him the phony elbows. Then got him in a rear naked choke, and, and they were just laying there immobile. Then he switched to an arm bar in the same position. And finally, after they were just laying there for about 30 seconds, Commander tapped out. 15 minutes of that to open the program. The most entertaining thing about this match was the sign in the crowd that said, Look in my eyes, what do you see? Where is Jack Perry? I like how you have to say it with a French accent for it to work. <laughs> Jack Petty! <laughs> well, you gotta lengthen it there a little bit. So that was that. What'd you think? You know, Moxley's just so bad. Just so bad. I just, I don't know. It's like, imagine if the Nasty Boys took off their shirt and just <laughs> decided no. to try to do jujitsu. <laughs> no, no, no. The Nasty Boys, without their shirts on, looks did like you, they ate Moxley. Did you see his shirt when he came out? Remember he came out previously with a shirt that said Death Jitsu and, like, fuck you or whatever you know, it says. Zero, zero fucks. And zero then he had fucks. to cover up the fucks with black duct tape. Now it What's says it say now? pure garbage. <laughs> is that his own, like, is that an actual dojo or is it his own, like, mental dojo? Death Apparently jitsu? he sells those in his mind. He's the practitioner of death jitsu, pure garbage. All right. <laughs> Why do we even bother? He does it for us. So, Commander is Alex Abrahantes now as his manager, so that's really good. It helps hype well, people Well, no, up. no. Anybody that's Hispanic is going to come out with Alex. That's just a thing now, which is kind of racist in its own way, I would think, but nevertheless. And does he really ever manage anybody? He's the hype man. Does he manage anybody? Does he rarely get to speak, but he jumps up and down, and he's excited when they come to the ring, and he's in their corner. Because as we mentioned, they're Hispanic. 
but he's a babyface manager. Should he be doing anything or should he be kind of hapless? I don't know why he should be there. It was good when he was doing the promo as the interpretation for Penthouse and Felix once upon a time when he, Penthouse says, and he was a prick heel, but now what use is he? And he doesn't speak for the Mexican wrestlers because he barely ever speaks. Beyond Moxley, have we seen enough of Commander? Have we seen everything Commander <laughs> does? Is there anything more to see from Commander? I, th I think much like Sugarloaf, we had his number as soon as he walked in the door. Anyway, so the Buckaroos from last Sunday were in a, um, a pre-taped interview. They were in the back after the match, and they were trying to act like they were frustrated about the loss. They're such, especially Maddie Pieface, when he hits the bench and goes, damn it, you know, or something like that. It's like, oh, I'm so upset. And FTR comes in, why didn't you shake our hands? We were trying to show you respect. Blah, blah, blah. Oh, we just got carried away because, you know, it didn't, we started this company. Had to get that in. We, we thought we were going to win the belts, didn't go our way. And then here comes the Bullet Club, consisting of Gin and Juice and the Gun Boys and the Cardboard Cutout they carry with them. And in some uninteresting and fairly mush-mouthed fashion, in no way making it interesting or building anticipation for it, they all decided they should have an eight-man tag team match on Sunday night at All Out. This is on Wednesday. If I had to ask you, how can you get the Young Bucks to work in Chicago and not get booed, what would you tell me? <laughs> team them up with FTR, but it ain't going to work. Because the people have now figured out they can do whatever they want. So they're going to, like the uh, in Puerto Rico, when the people just decided Zelina and EO that she was working with, this is going to be no. the greatest match of all time. Was it EO or was it who was it? It was EO and Bianca. Zelina was a different match, I think. That, that's right. It was EO and Bianca because Zelina was the one we thought would be in Puerto Rico, would be the hometown hero, and she wasn't. But anyway, point is, the punk fans will cheer the fuck out of FTR, and every time they tag one of these idiots, they'll boo them out of the building because they're going to want to have fun with it. And they know that the punk fans know that these guys are ultimately the ones responsible for them not getting to see the guy they paid for. So then, Renee Moxley Good was in the back with Tony Storm, and Tony Storm, again, is great in her vintage hairstyle and her haughty British, Australian, New Zealandish manner of whatever the fuck she's doing. She can't trust Ruby. She can't trust Soraya. Apparently, the problem with Soraya started, we didn't watch the match because there was eight hours and 45 minutes of other wrestling to watch the other day. But when Soraya's mother was at ringside in the front row, Tony Storm was coming with a punch. One of the heels was holding one of the baby faces and they ducked or whatever. And, and she nailed Soraya's mother and knocked her colder in the wedge in the front row during the match. So later on, that's when Soraya sprayed old Tony Storm in the face with the paint. And Tony is upset here because as she said, and I quote, Wembley went tits up. 
I didn't know you could say tits on cable over, even though that is a well-known expression. It went tits up over there. I didn't know you could say tits on cable now. I thought you could say fuck, because they do that all the time, and shit. They don't say fuck all the time. Well, they used to. <laughs> well, I mean, a few guys did. Remember but... one show, they said it about four times. One show, Moxley opened up and just immediately said, hey, fuck you, or whatever. Yeah, There's some guy yeah, in the hey, crowd. fuck you. Go hey, fuck yourself. Yeah. That's what it Go was. fuck yourself. I'll fuck your mother. <laughs> hey, your mother fucks me. What? Well, that's, that's the kind of thing they say over there. <laughs> what are we talking about? Oh, Tony Storm. Well, yeah. Now tell us how great she is. You love Tony Storm. She's Storm. doing classic Hollywood. You're doing classic Dice. She's really good. I wonder... Or get concerned that maybe she's going too far. I know each week, each interview, there's a progression. She's getting more out there while getting more into Norma Desmond. I don't know what exactly it is. But I just wonder if it's going to get too wacky. Oh, I'm sure it will. And I guess the breakup of the outcast isn't even official yet. It's about to happen. Who's, who's going to be cast out of the outcast? Tony should just do her own thing, but I don't know if that means Soraya and Ruby stay arm in arm. I don't know what happens. Let's stay together. Was that supposed to be Al, right. was that supposed to be Al Green's version? Of no, that was that was Don Green's version. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so then Chris Jericho was in the ring for a promo about Wembley and what all happened, and he called Sammy Guevara out because you know there was a problem. At Wembley, Jericho wasn't happy that he lost and, you know, everything had happened against Will Ostrich. But also, he had shoved, I believe, Sammy. They had some words, and Jericho apologized. He wasn't happy about what happened. He never should have shoved Sammy. He wasn't sure that Sammy had tried to help all that he could. And finally, he apologized. They shook hands. Then Jericho said, hey, maybe I should have done things differently. Maybe I you know, should have done this or that, or maybe, Sammy, you could have hit Ostrich harder with the baseball bat, but you tried. <laughs> and Sammy's like, wait a minute, what, hit harder? Maybe you could have hit him harder with the Judas. Then Jericho says, well, sometimes I ask you to do something, it doesn't turn out. And it degenerated from there to where they made snarky comments at each other about Jericho losing and Sammy not following Jericho's advice. And in this, Brian, did you have the same problem about two-thirds of the way through? <sighs> Jericho just turned babyface because he was attacked and beaten up by the evil manager Don Fallis when he was uh, going to join the organization, but then found out Callis had planned to stab him in the back the whole time. With some fine artwork. With some fine artwork. <laughs> Where's paint your life when we need it? <laughs> and so Jericho was, was the babyface. But when he wrestled Ostrich at Wembley with the evil manager Don Fallis in the corner who has more heat than anybody, at least in terms of the booing, Ostrich, being the hometown hero, was the goddamn far and away the fan favorite in the match. Now... Jericho, back in this country, the new baby face that he is, is apologizing to Guevara. But then Sammy has kind of been 
a baby face, but kind of not sometimes. But now in this interview, Jericho was the prickish one that got under Sammy's skin for Sammy to fucking fire up at him. So Sammy was put in the sympathetic position. And then at the end of the thing, Jericho said, wait a minute, let no, let's not be like this. Let's not fight. Let's not do this. Let's reunite. Let's get the sex gods back together. Let's win the AEW World Tag Team title. Next week, let's get back started on that road. And then Sammy said okay to that and hugged Jericho after they'd been arguing. Who's the babyface? Who's the heel? Whose side are we supposed to be on? Who's trying to zoom who? And what in the wide, wide world of fucking sports is going on here? Answer all those questions, one at a time. Oh, stop it. It's Jericho, so nothing in the end really is good or makes sense. But there are elements of good in this. The Osprey match was good. Don Callis' turn on Jericho was convoluted and ridiculous. Jericho being turned babyface and being the heel in London against a hometown boy is bad timing. And then this whole segment with Sammy. Jericho's acting was bad. If you watch their facial expressions while they're doing it, Jericho's like, like an acting coach and Sammy's trying to do it. But I thought Sammy did a good job, but then it goes back to, like you said, I mean, every fucking, we're friends. Back to friends. Hug. Friends. Thumbs up, friend. That's what it comes back to. And that's what it was here. And now we get to see less sex gods. I will be honest. That may be one of the more compelling matches I'd like to actually see FTR have right now. Would be FTR against Jericho and Sammy. It'd be different. Who knows what FTR would get out of Jericho. I don't know if that's going to be what happens, but wishful thinking. Well, speaking of wishful thinking... We were in the back where the plumber was holding court with Claudio and Useless about some shit out of the same shit that Moxley says all the time. But I I just made a note, if not for wrestling, Moxley would be in a work release program somewhere. Can you see it? Look, we're going to give you one more chance. We're gonna, you got to clean the fucking side of the interstate up for about two miles, and then we'll let you back out in public one more time. Oh, the next match was, I'm not kidding. This is, we're almost to the end of this thing. Um, well, not quite. There's still a little bit more left, but the New Japan Pro Wrestling Strong Open Weight title was defended next with Eddie Kingston, who apparently has just won this thing in Japan, against Wheeler Useless. What in... The New Japan Pro Wrestling Strong Openweight title. Are they just making this shit up now? That was not, it's not rhetorical. Is that a real thing? Well, yes, it's a real thing. It's a real strong championship for New Japan. I mean, that's also, I mean, what is it? Stardom has a, what was it? The Dream Princess... Open championship. I don't know what the fuck's going on. With arms wide open. I have a list here from the Cult of Cornet Facebook group. A member, Rob Francis, posted all the different championships that have been on AEW. This is a 34th championship. What? 
How is that possible? The AAA World Tag Team title, the AAA Mega title, the AAA Mixed Tag title, the AAA Latin American title, the NWA Women's title, the NWA World Welterweight title, the Ring of Honor World TV, uh, well, World TV, World Tag, Pure, Women's, and Six-Man title, the Impact World title and tag title, the IWGP US World and tag title, the New Japan Pro Wrestling Strong Women's, Strong Women's, Strong Women's, Strong Openweight, and TV title, the AEW World, Women's, Tag, TNT, TBS, Interim TNT, Interim World, All-Atlantic, Trios, International, although that's All-Atlantic, and Real World title. Also, the FTW title. I don't know what this is, <laughs> excuse me. The... Re- <laughs> The Regina D. Wave title. What? From a Japanese women's promotion. Also, the Oceanic title. The Oceanic title? What are they? <laughs> they get in a diving bell and go five miles under? Other titles or title-like things included the Owen Hart women's title, the Owen Hart men's title, and the Dynamite Diamond Ring. Well, at least Eddie Kingston won this contest. The Oceanic title, shouldn't it be at sea? Like you wrestle on a barge? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know, but I, I think everybody involved in this company is adrift, if nothing else. Well, if I asked you to place a bet on if this show is going to be good or bad coming out of the pay-per-view, what would you have done? Well, I think I would have won some money because I would have bet exactly what it was, which was rotten, stinky rotten. And I should have placed that bet. As a matter of fact, Brian, that's the way to get rich now. Just place your bets on the NFL or whatever the case with our friends at DraftKings. We've been talking about them now for several days. And I'll tell you what, the folks at DraftKings, the NFL season is right around the corner. As we mentioned the other day, they had pretty good luck with last year, so they're going to do it again. And now you can get in on the action with DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. So right there, if they're an official partner of the NFL, that means they probably got some inside knowledge. No, 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 no. that's not how it works. It's not based on inside knowledge. That's actually not exactly not how it works. It's gone. It's... they don't have <laughs> knowledge. You don't know how. No, it they have no. It's not about their knowledge. It's about your knowledge. You are trying to win. They are saying what they think, but there's no. So you're trying to win, and they're trying to stop you. There's no insider kind of deal going on. Well, see, they're trying to give you money. Here, I'll tell you about that. They're going to give you two hundred bucks just instantly, just like that, for five dollars. I don't know how that works. They can stay in business, but nevertheless, they're an official sports betting partner of the NFL, and that can be. Positive, it could also be negative. If you lose money, you better pay them up, or elsewise they're going to send some of these big NFL linemen out to your door to collect. That's not See, the way it works. Well, yeah, normally you will pay up and everything will be fine, but if for some reason you get the limber tail on that payment and it doesn't come every Tuesday exactly as promised, 
then somebody from the NFL is going to be on your front porch collecting that money. There will be no one from the NFL on your front porch. By the way, the NFL players make more money than you could ever imagine right now. I don't think they need the side job, the side hustle of bouncing for DraftKings. Well, that's true because they're they're more informed than anybody else when they bet on their own games. They're no, probably no, they, making a they fortune. don't bet on their own games. They're not supposed to bet on their own games. They're well, not allowed to. Well, the okay, their, their wife or their cousin, their brother-in-law. No, you no, know, no, wink, no. Wink, nod, nod. Hey, no. wink's as good as a nod to a blind man. What, what does that have to do with anything? I see, said the blind man to the crippled dog that used to belong to the tightrope walker. But we're talking about DraftKings here. We're talking and... about DraftKings. They're an official sports betting partner of the NFL, and right now, new customers. That would be you folks that have not previously availed yourself of this fine service can bet $5 and score $200 in bonus bets instantly, just like that. All DraftKings customers also can take advantage of two new offers for every game day this September. And they play a lot of these football games, right? They're doing it in a variety of places in this country. Yeah, it's very popular, yes. So so there's a, a lot of game days, so they're going to two new offers for all the DraftKings customers every game day this September. And that's why they say life's more fun when you're in on the action, especially when you're in on it. You know what I mean, when you're smartened up, when you're with the picture. That's not what they mean, no. There's a racket to this. And, There's and no the racket to this, no! The folks at DraftKings will smarten you up. As long as, they're not, as far as you need to be smartened up. They will give you an opportunity to test your sporting knowledge and possibly make some money. Just like Vince used to. He'd say, we'll give you the opportunity to make more money than you have ever made. And that's well, exactly what DraftKings yeah, is going to do right now. Is. Yes. If okay. you download the DraftKings Sportsbook app before kickoff, and use the code JCE, you will get $200 in bonus bets instantly when you bet just $5 on any NFL game or goings-on. And that's only on the DraftKings Sportsbook with the code JCE. So you can live like a king. That's how they got the name. These people are living like kings because they won all this money betting on the NFL. What people? The people that run DraftKings. So they won and then they took over the company? Yeah. <laughs> and now they're they're letting everybody in on the deal. <laughs> you can retire off this shit, man. I'm telling you. It's, the money will just be flying in. They'll be bringing it in wheelbarrows up your driveway. All and, you got to just risk everything. Or Don't direct risk. deposit, folks. Direct deposit. But just go all in. Liquidate everything no. you have. Real no. estate, stocks, bonds. Go all in on a big fucking home run on the first NFL game. Go all in on or a, a big, what are they what how do they score the touchdowns? Touchdown. What are you saying? Go I'm trying to tell people not to go all in on whatever financial. You're well, invest your money wisely, folks. Diversify. Go big or go home. I'm telling you, if you, if you can't stand the heat, get out of the kitchen. And if you if you if you can't do the time, don't do the crime, motherfucker. So I would advise you to turn your kids in at the orphanage and get something for them. No. Send your wife out in the streets to get some extra money. No. Put everything you got on, on the Cleveland Browns. A reasonable amount that you feel comfortable about on some other team. What's the matter with Cleveland? 
There may be other, I mean, there's other things happening right now. There's baseball. The last time the Browns went back to Ohio, their city was gone. They moved while they were out of town, hoping they wouldn't be able to find them. Anyway, once again, folks, go to DraftKings Sportsbook app and download it. I assume you know how to do that. You'll get no instructions from me. But if you do do that, downloading the DraftKings Sportsbook app, then you can use the code JCE to get $200 in bonus bets instantly on a $5 bet on the NFL, and that's only on DraftKings Sportsbook. We have some other information here. Have we gotten clarification on whether we need to read this verbatim or not? Apparently we do. Well, I'll give it a try. <laughs> Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit www.1800gambler.net. In New York, call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY, parenthetically, 467-369. In Connecticut... Help is available for problem gambling. Call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org. Please play responsibly. On behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort, parenthetically KS, I think that's Kansas, 21 plus age varies by jurisdiction. You could be as young as six in the Philippines. No. No? No. Well, I mean, no. you could be any age you want in the Philippines. It has nothing to do with this. Void in Ontario. Yes. There sure is a big black space right there in the middle of Ontario. <laughs> CCDKNG.co slash football for eligibility. Oh, that got me last time too. No, you know, they've added a C. There's two. It's C-S-E-E. -E. They've added two C's. It's not C-C. It, it should just be C-D-K-N-G.co slash football for eligibility. Terms and responsible gaming resources. <laughs> Bonus bets expire seven days after issuance. Eligibility and deposit restrictions apply. And if you're anywhere else besides New York or Connecticut and you got a problem, well, go fuck yourself. We don't have the information on that. CCDK. <laughs> CCDK. <laughs> See, there's too many C's. I know. I'm staring at it while you're reading it. I'm just losing my mind. Because then it's just letters, just random yes. letters thrown at you. Loud noises. <laughs> All right. Well, that's uh, DraftKings. We uh, once again Thanks welcome them aboard. Uh, this is their first time here in the drive-thru. Welcome to the drive-thru, DraftKings. Yes. Well, you don't know what you've gotten in for, but you're about to find out. Well, what else did we have in for on AEW Dynamite? Well, we had MJF and Adam Cole in their package from Wembley. And then they did a promo after the match, which MJF took the majority of because apparently he said he was going to Paris for vacation because he's been wrestling too often lately. But he'll be back um, next week on Rampage. No, wait. Hold on. Next week on Rampage, there is a battle royal to determine the next challengers for the Ring of Honor tag team title that MJF and Adam Cole have. And MJF is going to enter... No. Adam Cole, who's going to win or the inter winner? Is enter the tournament. This is a great review. God damn it. <laughs> I'm telling you. There's going to be a battle. <laughs> MJF. MJF, O-U-R-S-E. There's going to be a, a battle royal on Rampage for a Ring of Honor tag team title match, and there's going to be a tournament 
that is going to be ongoing to determine a winner to get a shot at the AEW world title at the Arthur Ashe Stadium show. And Adam Cole is going to enter that, I believe, so that eventually he may get another chance at MJF. But MJF said he's taking the week off because he's wrestling too much. So he just told him he's not in Chicago tonight. So Punk ain't there. MJF ain't there live, I'm talking about. Who that they would have thought that they would have, were paying to see is left to be there on this fucking crummy show. So far live, they've seen the plumber and commander, Konnichiwa. Jericho and Sammy in an interview, and Kingston and Useless in a match. And then here comes Adam Cole for a live in-ring promo. Okay, he's a star at least, half of this equation. And he's happy that they won the Ring of Honor belts, but unhappy that he lost the main event, but he's going to get another shot because he's, he's going to be in the tournament, blah, 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 blah. And MJF, he says, is banged up, and you can hear the people go like, boo, like he's going to be ready to go this Sunday. And we're like, they're like, we're here tonight, motherfucker. And then suddenly out comes Roderick Strong with Mike Bennett and Matt Taven. And this turned into my favorite segment of the show. Because I always knew that Mike Bennett could talk. That's why I was very high on him, what, 13, 14 years ago now. Unfortunately, uh, his career got derailed by stints in Ring of Honor when it was not visible and impact when it's never been visible and matt taven i also think should have been a heck of a star but he got derailed somehow and i guess they didn't have the proper friends in cucamonga to get them the big time jobs they're just good wrestlers and they can talk and but roddy i've always known bennett could talk i've always known taven was going to be a star roddy's an impeccable worker but his promos as i believe you mentioned the other day have never been his strong point, but they all fired up at Adam here, and it turned into maybe faint praise, but the best segment on the program, where Roddy's pissing and moaning, but you care more about Max's neck than mine. And, you know, Adam's like, this has gotten ridiculous, Roddy. And then Bennett jumped all over Cole. And in 2010 in Ring of Honor, we got each other jobs. Actually, no, they didn't. We had already decided to hire both, but they had a good match. Oh, stop um, it. Is this the first time they would hear that? I doubt it. I don't know. I, I don't know why they ever thought that. I've had Mike Bennett here to the castle and told him what I thought of his talents and, and when he was working with Bob Evans. And... You know, we we started off giving him a push as the the what was the prodigy, Mike Bennett, right? Because he was a young twenty-something-year-old kid then. And Adam Cole, from the first time he worked Ring of Honor and did a couple of promos, uh, we knew we we were going to use him to the heavens. So it wasn't dependent on a match they had, but it works in the story here. And they did all these things together. Cole was at Bennett's wedding. Blah blah blah. And I, Taven fired up well, too, and talked about Adam running off to Florida and leaving us all behind. And basically, they made Adam Cole out to be an ungrateful prick that ignores everybody that ever helped him. And I'll tell you, Bennett and Taven, I haven't seen them wrestle in years. 
but they could fucking go at one time. If we can get something going on here with these guys, at least we've got a chance to see some good fucking wrestling matches. I'd love for them to be transported over to Saturday nights. And the, so then, as any good babyface would, that has been accosted by these people running his character down, he apologized to them if he made them feel that way. But folk, friendship requires understanding. And MJF is my best friend. And then we go back to all the friend business. And then Roddy's going to get in the tournament for the shot at MJF. And he'll be the champion with his real friends, Matt Taven and Mike Bennett. You, you know what? I got excited about it. I, I don't think that's going to be the end result. Probably not. Probably not. But MJF versus Roddy Strong sounds like a good match. And that would be fun. Except <laughs> MJF will probably try to figure out a way he can stay away from getting chopped. And Cole's worried about Roddy's neck. And Roddy says, bad neck or not, I'm winning that tournament. So now, now you worry about my neck, right? So anyway, they walk off and leave Adam Cole. So Adam Cole was dressed down and apologized like all good baby faces. And then they walked off and left him. Your thoughts? This is the best character work of Roddy's career, despite the who's who's friends with who angle. I, I was going to say part of this angle, though it's the whole angle is who's friends with who. Roddy's doing the best stuff he's ever done. I think if he loses that neck brace, it'll be like you know Samson getting his hair cut. So keep the <laughs> neck brace on him. I was really enjoying Taven as the mute guy that's always just standing in the back. So I was a little disappointed that they broke that, but he was good. Bennett was excellent on the mic, and that wasn't necessarily a crowd that wanted guys that weren't established to get mic time. Right. And I think they overcame that pretty well. Despite the silliness of the who's friends with who aspect of this, again, there's ways to do that where it's not like, who's friends with who? You can introduce the idea you were the best man at my wedding. It doesn't have to be so childish. But, but and here's the thing. But in, this was the best thing on the show. I agree with you. Yeah, in, in wrestling history, a lot of major money angles have been when friends broke up and faced each other. Yes, but they didn't spend all the time talking about, are you, are you my friend? I was friends with you and you weren't friends with me. We need to be better friends and all the other friends and blah, blah, blah. It was, it was implied in the history of wrestling that all the baby faces were friends with each other and all the heels were friends with each other. You didn't need to say it. Every once in a while, and we even did it with the Midnight and Tully and Arn, because Bobby and Arn were best friends, so we, we illustrated that in the promos that Tully was the prick that nobody liked, Arn and Bobby were friends. Stan wasn't necessarily friends with either Arn or Tully. But there was the, and, and that they lived close together and their children played together. We made that, because that made it more personal, but also nobody else was talking about, I've, I've longed to be your friend. It was different. Anyway, you don't have to, you can have betrayal and vengeance and, Etc. without just constantly saying, are you my friend? Most people want stars and celebrities and 
they're sports heroes to be kind of badasses that don't particularly give a shit whether people want to be their friend or not. Don't they? Steve Austin? Don't trust anybody? Fuck the boss? Whatever? Like when Bob Orton turned on Roddy Piper, Piper didn't cry and scream, you were my friend. Yeah, there you go. He said, you backstabbing motherfucker after all I've done for you, like normal human beings say. All right. We had Nyla Rose, Marina Schaefer, and Emmy Sakura wrestle Britt Baker, Hikaru Shida, and Chris Statlander. And Emmy Sakura has given up dressing like Freddie Mercury and instead came out dressed like a cross between Queen Elizabeth and Jerry King Lawler. A crow, a crobe. A robe, a crown. Crobe. Could have been a crobe. <laughs> a robe, a crown. I think I saw a staff or a scepter. Or whatever. She looked like she just stepped off the top of a fucking margarine tub. And I've got to admit it, as rotten as the AEW women's division is, Sakura is a whole new level of amateur. Do they they have self-training in Japan? We've seen that with Maki Ito. And apparently she's cut from the same cloth. Did I miss anything in this contest? Didn't she train Maki Ito? Oh no, no, she trained Riho. That's what it was. I oh think. boy. Well, there you go. I didn't watch this match. I wasn't All right. There's was no way I was gonna watch this match. So moving on. Shane Taylor. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh Chad. Wilson. <laughs> Dan Tucker. <laughs> they Shane had a Taylor, package. Yeah. They had a package on Shane Taylor, who is going to challenge Samoa Joe. I'm grinning. I can't. Who's going to challenge Samoa Joe for the Ring of Honor television title on Sunday's pay-per-view? Have we ever heard of Shane Taylor? Has Shane Taylor been on this program? Has he ever been seen? Has his name ever been mentioned? I don't remember ever seeing him on this program. I'm not familiar with everyone in Ring of Honor currently. I don't watch. Well, currently, there really is nobody in Ring of Honor because they all work for AEW and they just call it something different. But apparently, this guy was in Ring of Honor before. And now he's getting a shot at the title, despite the fact that we have never seen him, heard of him, or he's never been mentioned until four days before the title match. Big looking fella. Uh, then they did an interview with Take a Shit and Don Fallis and The Scar. The Scar now gets its own introduction. It's as big as a human. Have you seen where he's putting the, the he's dressing yeah. it up with the red lipstick or whatever? And it's getting longer. It's going to be down. It's going to be across his eye by October into his cheek like a Bond villain. And they had. Can I say something? Yes, please do. This was the best Don Callis, to me, this was the best Don Callis promo. I should, well, again, it's a backstage one as opposed to being in the ring, but I thought this was the best thing he's done, him and Takeshita. Maybe most, most effective as a manager. Yeah, this was like, this was good stuff, I thought. Well, that's the thing. They had, it is probably Don's. I would, I would think this kind of sounds like something he'd come up with, and it was good. They had the x-rays of all the surgeries that, Kenny o Olivier has had this past year, all the weaknesses in his body, the bad neck, the bad back, the hernia repair. And Don is telling, take a shit, what moves to use to damage all of these surgically repaired 
items he's got going on. Give him the forearm under the chin for the bad neck and the blue thunder bomb for the... The blue thunder bomb wouldn't be the worst thing for a hernia. I've had a couple. I suggest he just splash the motherfucker right in his nuts. But anyway, that was the thing. The heel manager getting the medical reports of his former protege in order to give them to the fucking evil heel to have him break down the weaknesses. I like that concept. Like you said, that was a good idea. And that didn't last too long. And then we came back out in the arena to the acclaimed and Billy Gunn entrance. Did you like the rap? Can you give me, can you give me a beat? Oh shit. Fuck. <clears throat> hold on, hold on, hold on. I'm revving up. I'm not letting go of this opportunity. Uh, hold on. I'm over, uh, here. I'm over here. Hold on. Hemina, 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 me, 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 my, my, my. I got one leg. I got one leg. I said a hip hop, hip it, hip it, hip it, hip, hip hop on one leg. You don't stop a rockin' to the bang bang boogie. Say up, jump the boogie to the rhythm of Brian Lass's kalimba. Oh, here we go. There's your beat, Jim. Okay. 80,000 people, that's colossal, but we never froze, so we're not Mitch McConnell. These other teams dressed looking bloodshot, they looking pissed like Trump in his mugshot. Yay! What is that? A, you got a strip club in there? Get off the pole, Brian. And put that dollar bill back in your fucking panties. All right. Don't talk about my panties on the air, please. Thank you. All right. So the ring was set up with a podium and a table and what was obviously brand new belts under black sheets or towels or whatever. And they did a promo about winning the six-man tag team title. And the fans were so excited about what they were saying, they just said, fuck it. They start chanting, scissor me, daddy. But they did a ribbon-cutting ceremony with giant scissors and unveiled the new six-man tag team belts with hot pink leather and a scissor fastener on the back. And they will defend these belts on Saturday night on collision, and then they scissored the belts. And unbelievably enough, nobody came out to beat them up. But boy, how did, Billy even said at the start of this thing, well, we're running late. We hadn't got much time. I swear to God, what was this show? Plumber and Commander. Yeah. Um, Kingston and Useless. Yeah. A six-girl tag. Ugh. That's it in the way of matches and these interviews that, that don't end and that often don't have a purpose. Yeah. And they did manage to announce, as we mentioned so far, about four or five fucking matches for the pay-per-view happening five days away, four days away, whatever. But the acclaimed are just floating. The people like them. They love them even. But a lot of this hinges on Billy. They've got now they've they've got this young twenty-something-year-old tag team combination. Well, they're not that young. I think they're actually at least Caster. Someone told me Caster's in his early thirties. Ah, yeah, yeah. Well, they've got this young tag team combination, and the most popular person is Billy, and he'll be doing this forever. 
But that was that. Um, and they're going to defend the titles, as I mentioned, on Collision on Saturday. So we got that going for us. Other comp, they're floating. What do you think? What's going on here? <laughs> no, I uh, I don't know what. Uh, I've kind of lost it for the acclaimed. I love that rap video they did the other day on, I guess, Collision. But these are the kind of segments I don't like when they're on Raw. You know, like, I'm not a fan. Obviously, it was a major success, and you could always say, look, it did great numbers, but that This Is Your Life, The Rock segment. It never went anywhere. You know, it was like it kind of happened, and then the show just moved on with the next segment. Nothing happened. Yeah. But it did a great number, but it wasn't good. With this, nothing. All of a sudden, there's a ribbon-cutting ceremony <laughs> for these new belts. Well, I'll say one thing. Tony Khan gets a lot of credit, and he deserves it, for creating an amazing opportunity for so many wrestlers and people around the wrestling industry to make a lot of money. Not enough has been said about him keeping all these belt schmucks in business. That's right. The belt makers have never been so happy. Oh, my God. Every three months is a new belt and a new design and a new look and a new strap. Nonstop. You used to couldn't get the goddamn promoters to pay for a new title belt if the old one was falling apart and you could see the guy's dick through it. What would the prices be now compared to what they would have been in, let's say, the mid-80s or even the 70s, based on what you would know? Like, did inflation match the price of the title belts, or did it come down significantly? Well, no, now you can, I mean, you can always... For a always, promoter, not for a fan, but for yeah, a promoter. Yeah, no, for a promoter or wrestling company, you can always spend as much money as you want to for a belt if you go crazy and, you know, have a wild design and put everything in it, but... Like, like the Nikita Molkovich belt, how much did it cost when it was first... Well, that's what I'm saying. The, 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 the cost of the belts adjusted for inflation is probably less now than ever because there's more people making them. In 1991, when I got my Smoky Mountain Wrestling belts, first ones I had ever bought, you know, specifically myself out of my own pocket, uh, I got the three done for 1500 bucks a piece from Reggie Parks. And that was when Reggie was just about to retire and, um, you know, Milliken and those guys were taken over. But now at that time, there weren't too many other options, right? Now, Adrian Street was doing some sort of belt, I think, at one point or another, and maybe some other people, but what other right. options would there have been for you? Well, th there weren't that many, and Reggie was the the trademark, right? Reggie was the, the go-to guy back then, just as Mokovich had been 10 years previous. Reggie, all through the 80s, did the belts. Mokovich did a lot of them through the 70s. I don't think the Mokovich belts... In the 70s, I don't know that they were $1,500 a piece. But, it, you know, at that point also, that's uh, that's now 6000 If it was 1500 in the mid-70s, it's about six grand now. Right, that's my question and, there. Well, and now there's so many. The replica belts now look better than the real belts that the promoters used back then. So the point is... You can have all the belts you want now because there's multiple people making them. Whereas before it was, hey, you got to call Reggie and he's going to be backed up for six months. Or, you know, if somebody knew a metal smith in some territory, that's why the you would see belts in different territories that didn't look like any other belt in any wrestling promotion ever. That's when they'd found local people that just did metal work to make something. And that's the only belt they ever made. Mokovich, Ver, his yeah, books Vern's AWA belt, right? Yeah, well, he got that one made in prison, right? <laughs> that's right. 
But uh, the Jarrett CWA title belt, the world uh, CWA world title with the stained glass in it, it was completely different from uh, looking from every other belt because he had it made somewhere in, in Tennessee. That's the only belt a guy ever made. Are the belts, so, are the, do you think the belts are too standardized now? I mean, everything's kind of the same shape or the same outline. Yeah. We see, you know, an homage to an old belt, like a UWF TV title or something. Would, not only are there too many of them, but yes, they're all too similar. And the WWF is ridiculous in terms of all the belts being the same, just different color accent or whatever. You know, it, it, it was, it not only makes the, the championship stand out, but it makes the guy stand out. If he's wearing a belt that looks different than every other belt that the guy in the territory or in that area or in that promotion or whatever has, and that's very uncommon these days. Oh, what, did you hear the thing? The WWE has teamed up with the NFL, like our friends at DraftKings, to make WWE championship-style belts for the different NFL pro football teams, but... Have you heard they pulled the Jacksonville Jaguars belt? The WWE, it's either not. Fanatics. Well, I think Fanatics is involved because remember, WWE is a deal with them and the Fanatics is the exclusive, I think, merch supplier for the NFL. Well, yeah, but the point is, in some fashion, whoever's responsible for it, the WWE's not just making NFL belts and, and bootlegging them and screwing the NFL. It's a deal that they've got with somebody but they pulled the Jacksonville Jaguars belt. It's not on the WWE website, according to fans on Twitter. And is that because the Jaguars and the cons didn't want their belt being sold by the WWE or the WWE didn't want the embarrassment of selling a belt of a team that was owned by their competitors? If you were an NFL owner, would you want the league being involved in an exclusive deal like this with a competitor and another one of your businesses? Getting the rights to merchandise off your other company? Probably not. Yeah, if I was Tony Khan, I definitely yeah. wouldn't want this. But I, I don't know which which came first, the chicken or the egg, or whether there was a mutual feeling, but for some reason or another, this is what I saw on Twitter. Feel free, folks out there, cult of Cornette, smarten us up on this, but the Jaguars belt was pulled, is not available, not going to be taking place, whatever. We need more details. Who's buying that? I mean, do you bring it? Do do football fans bring their championship belts to the game the way wrestling? Fans I guess they wrestling? will now. <laughs> They've never been able to before. They had to wear those cumbersome cleats and shoulder pads and that fucking helmet they couldn't hardly see out of and and carry that goddamn football. Now they can just wear the belt. Well, coming to an arena near you, but we are still talking about somehow that was belt talk, ladies and gentlemen. Yes, well, back to dynamite. Well, not for long because the main event was for the Halloween Superstore Championship Penthouse Challenging Pockets. That was the main event of this rotten program with no star power whatsoever, no good matches and eh, interviews, was Penthouse and Pockets for another fake belt. And so now we've established that the Wednesday night program is the full outlaw joke wrestling show. And... If I was the people in Chicago and I'd bought a ticket to this thinking I'm going to see punk, I'm going to see MJF, I'm going to see FTR, I'm going to see any goddamn body. 
And I got, literally, I got the plumber, the commander, the Mayan war bride. I got the fucking Kingston and Useless with a gimmick belt, a six-girl tag, and pockets and penthouse. What the fuck? I'm throwing that away. I'm not even using the blank pages on that pad. It's contaminated. All right. Well, that was a contaminated episode of Dynamite. But, Jim, before we get off this AEW stuff, and uh, we have not too much longer to go, you want to preview all out because I'm not even too familiar with the card. Are you familiar with the card? I would love to preview it. I'd love to know what the fuck it is. They started announcing matches for the Sunday night pay-per-view on the Wednesday before. And I think they had one match announced last week, but I don't know what the, and and to, to hear what the matches are, you have to listen to excrement old sock face himself. And that's an assault on the ears. So you're the salesman is an annoying fuckwit, <gasps> and you've only got less than a week to give the people the card. So this is this is not shaping up to be one of the all time record breaking crowds. But go ahead. All right, this is the card. This is according to AEW's own website. So we're going to go. From They've there. actually got it. Maybe they're listening. And here we are, September 3rd, 2023, the United Center, Chicago, Illinois. Start time, 6 p.m. Central Time. For the TNT Championship, the champion, Luchasaurus, versus Darby Allen. Well, at least these are two guys that have been interacting on their television, and it's for one of the titles that they defend fairly often. And... I mean, I, I don't think that Luchasaurus should ever have a wrestling match, much less win one. But I would imagine they'll probably uh, do something to further the heat with Christian, and I'm in favor of that. So Luchasaurus will probably retain with Christian getting further up Darby's ass. Powerhouse Hobbs versus Miro. Who this is... <sighs> You know, it's it's the battle of the brutes, as Nick Goulas would say. I, I don't see which one needs to lose. I think both of them need to win. Hobbs needs to win because he needs to do something. And Miro needs to win because, except for squash matches, have we seen him do anything in months and months and months and months? No one, no one, no one, no. So maybe it'll be a double count out or a double disqualification and they'll both lose. For the TBS Championship, the champion Chris Statlander versus Ruby Soho. Goodbye, Ruby Soho. Statlander made a mess of you when you laid there on the canvas with your hair a green hue. Brian Jones had it easy. <laughs> Kenny Omega. Mm. Versus Kanosuke Takeshita. Okay, I've, I want to see Take a Shit just beat the ever-loving stew out of Twinkle Toes and re-injure all of his injuries and have the x-rays there taped to him to prove it and send him off back to Japan where he can recuperate in the waiting arms of Kota Ibushi. That's what I'm hoping for. Right, we'll see if they're listening to you. For the AEW International Championship, the champion, Orange Cassidy, versus John Moxley. 
Well, there's our bathroom break, and we'll probably have time to make a sandwich because both of these self-indulgent, talentless pricks will want to go 20 or 25 minutes doing all the stupid shit they do that nobody cares about but spoils it for the real talent on the card. So I'm thinking a shit, a sandwich, and Harley taking a piss. That's what this match will last. Will it be more CZW or more Chikara? Moxley has more... uh, um, pull in the company so it's going to be full-on garbage rather than just the imitation play lucha promotion for the ring of honor world tv championship the champion samoa joe versus shane taylor uh, uh, well he's an unknown commodity is shane taylor <laughs> samoa joe better win this match because my god what in the fuck of course Joe's going to win. Could you get him over if he's talented, impressive, and we haven't seen him, so he's an unknown, but he's getting this spot. If he beats Joe in Chicago after everything Joe's been doing with Punk, does it get him over? No, because people in this company are used to screwy finishes and people that aren't supposed to winning, so it's not really a shock anymore. But no, Joe's in the middle of, well, he was in the middle of a thing with Punk, and he's in the middle of being praised as the king of television. And they've just begun to get that over. So no, he should either be beating people decisively or be doing disputed and or, you know, up in the air finishes with a guy like Punk or somebody that he's programmed with. He shouldn't be doing a job to an unknown person who's coming in at this particular point. So I would imagine Shane will be counting light bulbs in the ceiling. For the Ring of Honor World Tag Team Championship, the champions, better than you, baby, comprised of MJF and Adam Cole, versus the winners of the Ring of Honor Tag Team Battle Royale. And I believe those results are in. Oh, they've done it already? They did it on Rampage. That's not till Friday. Well, they taped it. Ah. The winners will be the Dark Order. Oh, God. Alex Reynolds and John Silver. What the? <laughs> Oh, two bodily functions and a here we go that seems more like it <laughs> how many do you have over there <laughs> so the people now they didn't get to see MJF at all in Chicago on Wednesday and they only got to see Adam Cole talk and now on Friday night they're going to watch them work with fucking job guys or on Saturday night? So, or Sunday night. What? Wait a minute. Saturday night's collision. Sunday night is this pay-per-view. So on Sunday night, the big show, MJF and Adam Cole, the most popular two guys in the company, are going to be working with job guys. Don't worry. They'll All have right. a really fun competitive match. That's what I'm afraid of. Is that it? No, there's two more matches. Oh, boy. Wait a minute. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Well, they're going to make up for the fact that nobody knows what the matches are by having a bunch of them. Eddie Kingston. Oh, boy. And Shibata versus Claudio Castagnoli and Wheeler Yuta. Wow. Okay, Shibata. Is he the one with the missing brain? 
He doesn't have a missing brain. He has they his brain. They found it. Well, no, they, they, they never it. lost it. They always had control of the brain. They always knew where the brain was, but the wrestling observer- They were observer moving it reported. around from place to place, but they still knew where it was. The wrestling observer had five different sources who saw the brain leave the head <laughs> and then be placed back in the head. So I, I don't know. But other people said they were just kidding. Uh, and finally, FTR and the Young Bucks versus Bullet Club Gold, comprised of Juice Robinson, Jay White, and the Guns. So he's really going to try to pull this off and not have Punk on the pay-per-view card in Chicago. And are they at the United Center for this? They are at the uh, the United Center, but I actually read there was they're one at the, of the Now film. Arena, the smaller one for the TVs, and then they're at the United Center for the pay per view. I just want to see one other thing because someone sent me something earlier that they were setting up, and I couldn't believe it. I just want to see. Hold on, Jim, before we uh, wrap up this. Review. I'm I'm not rushing you. Well, Jim, I have an article here that I just saw before from the Wrestling Observer website. Ricky Starks to challenge Ricky Steamboat for All Out. What? On AEW Collision. He will challenge Steamboat to an All Out strap match on Saturday's Collision. Is Ricky Steamboat filling in for CM Punk? It sure sounds like it. Yeah. I mean, otherwise, what are they doing here? But that Ricky is 70, what, three years old, and he had a brain bleed years ago. And the WWF wouldn't let him get back in the ring. And he did the referee thing with, uh, didn't he, he turn down doing a, doing Flair's last match. And then I think he did a six man recently for a legend show, but he's only wrestled like once in years and a single strap match. Not even just a singles match. Even that you're like, man, you know, I worry about Ricky Steamboat. A strap match. It's just the... I don't think Starks would do anything crazy to hurt him, and I don't think Ricky would cooperate with anything willingly that he would get hurt doing, but there's always the chance. And with a guy, even as great a shape he's in, he had a brain bleed when he was wrestling. What was that? That was almost 10 years ago for the WWF, right? This has to be some kind of angle to get Punk into the match. It better be. And then you're announcing, and then you're announcing Punk versus Starks the day before the pay per view, if that's the case. Well, I, now when this is supposed, this match is supposed to be on Collision. He's going to challenge on Saturday's Collision, according to a tweet from Tony Khan. This Saturday, September two, United Center, Chicago, Illinois. Saturday night, AEW Collision, live on TNT, the place to be. No, eight p.m. Eastern, seven p.m. Central. This Saturday on TNT Drama, Absolute Ricky Starks will appear live on AEW Collision to challenge Ricky the Dragon Steamboat to a strap match this Sunday, this in caps, at AEW All Out. Well, I'll tell you what, if he does and Steamboat accepts it, and they go to the pay-per-view, and they start this match, and Ricky gets a flurry, and then Starks shuts him down and does something heinous to him where he's hurt and can't continue, and as they're loading him up on a stretcher and Starks is gloating, like Mussolini hits, 
the babies will go in the air. If they have the match and it's a regular match and Starks wins in the end, I think we're still back to burning seats. Well, that's everything so far announced for All Out and uh, rumored for All Out at this point. Well, but they've still got, what, two more days? They've still got a couple more days to put anything else together. If you were an AEW fan and you just paid all that money to watch All In, turned out an afternoon show was nice for AEW because it ends and it's not the end of the day. But you just paid for that and a week later you get this for the card. You may want to sue. You might want to sue. You might want to haul somebody into court. You might want to say, God damn it, I am going to fire out a writ of habeas corpus, corpus delecti, and corpus Christi against the manipulators who are trying to sell me a bill of goods. And if you need to do that, then there's only one human being in the world that you should call. Call Stephen Folks, he's a humble man, is Stephen P. New. He's a he's a very humble man. He doesn't like to make a big show of his extreme expertise when it comes to legal matters, when it comes to him being the the baron of the barristers, the the king of all the jurisprudencers. He doesn't like he likes to let us say how great he is. He don't want to tell us himself. He wants to let us tell him. And folks. I can assure you of this, whether you need to sue a weasel in Calabasas County or whether you need to sue someone that has harmed you or poisoned your drinking water or damaged your family's health and financial security or run you over in a car or these nasty, no good jail operators that are incarcerating people in ever bigger numbers in substandard jails. You can't even be safe in prison anymore. No matter what you need done in a court of law, Stephen P. New is the man that's going to do it. 888-692-8084, newlawoffice.com. Get even with our man Stephen, because he will layeth the suing smacketh down upon your candieth ass. Can you imagine a card like this? I th- this is bait and switch. You can sue for bait and switch now, can't you? It depends if, on if the... So, uh, if somebody gives you bad bait, you can take a switch to them? I don't know if that's how it works, but Stephen P. New would well, be the man who could answer I thought that. that's how it works. If somebody gives you worms that the fish won't eat, the, the worms are rotten, the, the live bait is turned, you're allowed to take a switch to them to get even, get your money back. Bait and switch. It's an old legal tactic. Stephen P. New. That's him. That's right. Stephen P. New. And just a quick update here. You know, we've been talking so much about cast media, Colin Thompson, Live One, Podcast One, Rob Ellen here on the show. You may have noticed that there haven't been too many other voices out there. That may be changing very soon, folks. So stay tuned because this story may be about to get a lot bigger. We've been talking to people with voices, and they may be using them. That's right. That's right. Some people you may have heard of. Some people that may be on the tips of everybody's tongue. 
Well, I don't know. Bye, Cracky. We're, we all, we're always leading the, the charge, though, Brian. We're always out in front, out in the, the vanguard. That's right. Of course, with Stephen P. New with us, but you'll hear much more about this. On Stephen's the flag waver. He's a much better flag waver than Johnny Ace was. Who's the drummer boy? I'll, I'll, I'll give you a beat. See, that's the, uh, the drum that? break. That's the drum break in Stairway to Heaven. Let me hear it again. I got no rhythm. I'm a white boy. What can I say? You have any other drum solos you could do? Yeah. How about this one? See, that's drums and horns. All right. Well, uh, let's blow the horn here. Jim, before we move on, and we have dynamite ratings to talk about, but Dave Meltzer, the Wrestling Observer Newsletter, has come out with the star ratings for AEW All In London in Wembley Stadium. Oh boy. Are you ready for this? I can't wait. From Zero Hour, Better Than You, Bebe, versus Aussie Open, two and three quarter stars. I. I don't know what to say. I didn't pay that much attention except for the finish because of the match that it was. But uh, I, I, I can't imagine it didn't get five stars because unless, uh, well, was let's see. If Cole is kind of one of Dave's friends, right? He plays with the other kids. But maybe he's not on the MJF bandwagon anymore. Hook versus Jack Perry. Three and a quarter stars. <laughs> because they they did the suplex through the windshield. That gave them a whole extra star, right? Glass means stars? Is that what you're saying? Hey, hey red turns green and glass breaks into stars. From the main card, Jim, CM Punk versus Samoa Joe. Three and a half stars. Okay. Um, on the real scale... That's probably what it was, because that's half a star away from four stars, which would be, they tore the house down. Um, on Dave's scale, this is probably, what, about one and a half on the, on the real Richter scale? I don't know what he's thinking anymore. So, I, you know, I would say, yes, that was a three and a half star match, because my scale was four stars and five if Terry Funk was involved. The next match, Jim, Bullet Club Gold versus the Golden Elite. Four and a half stars. Oh, Jesus Christ. All right, here we go. So the throwaway six-man tag team match to get, uh, you know, some of the guys on the card was the a level above most of Flair and Steamboat. Okay, I got it. Most of well, I mean, Flair Steamboat was five stars, right? And no, I said, didn't had he done that? Did he do that or did he give him four and a half? No, no I, I can't remember. It, I thought they got five, but now you're making me question it. Did all of them get five? Well, the next match, Jim FTR versus the Young Bucks, four and three quarter stars. <laughs> okay. Again, which, which, according to Dave, I guess is as good as five stars, right? It's as good as five stars. That's what he said. We're, we're not arguing. We're arguing about the same thing. So he didn't want Twinkle Toes to get too mad, but I think he likes Maddie and Nikki better. And what did he give 
gin and juice and FTR in the two out of three fall 58 minute extravaganza. I want to say that went past five stars. That was like five and a half stars or maybe five and a quarter. Maybe there was three quarters. It was almost six stars, but not there. Oh, good. I don't fuck it. Okay. Somewhat over five, but under six. (sighs) Yeah. Well, this was four and three quarters. Okay. Very, very, very good. Um, it was the FTR did the best they could. It was unfortunately not the best FTR match, but not due to any of their, their shortcomings, but it was not as good as FTR and the Briscoes, FTR and gin and juice a couple of different times, FTR and Gable and Jordan, FTR and I could go on. It wasn't as good as the first two young bucks FTR matches. I've tried to put those out of my memory. The second one was probably the best one, but the first one was really, really good too. But this was the the least good of the three matches. The least good. The least good of the three matches. Jim Stadium Stampede, featuring the Blackpool Combat Club, Santana, or Mike Santana, and Ortiz, against the best friends, Orange Cassidy, Eddie Kingston, and there was another Penta is his name. Four and a half stars. <laughs> For garbage and business exposing and stupidity and unprofessionalism and dangerous shit for no reason and bad booking leading to confusing teams in a poorly built up contest four and a half stars as moxley in it if you have moxley in it they will give it an extra star right away the women's four-way match with soraya winning the title in London, two and three quarter stars. I mean, I, w- I would argue with that that it's too high, except that Dave's schedule, schedule uh, Dave's system is so out of whack here. Two and three quarters would be if somebody dropped their pants and took a shit in the ring, right? For the modern day Dave scale, I guess kind of, yeah. Yeah. The next one. Nothing on this fucking abomination has been under three well, so far. Actually, the only of the met the, the f- women's four way got the same rating as better than you, Bay Bay versus Aussie Open. Yeah, well, that's on the pre show, so we're not talking about that. Sting and Darby Allen versus Swerve Strickland and Christian Cage in a coffin match. Oh boy, four and a quarter stars. Oh come on! <sighs> All right. Will, That's, I mean, I don't know what else to say at this point. Will Ospreay versus Chris Jericho, four and three quarter stars. <laughs> Practically five. Now we're in Flair Steamboat territory. And by the way, I remind you, Kurt Angle has never received a five star match from Dave Meltzer, but Jericho and Ostrich get four and three quarter. The Acclaimed versus the House of Black for the Trios Championship, or the Acclaimed and Billy Gunn, technically. Yes. Two and a half stars. Uh, Jesus. Who'd they piss off? Dave Meltzer. What did they say about (laughs) Dave? Dave Meltzer. (laughs) Did Billy tell him to go suck it or something? Or I mean, it wasn't that great, but, you know, compared to everything else, I mean, when you've got people running around when you got the plumber in something that gets four and something stars but they only get two and a half that's a that's an insult of epic proportions 
When we reviewed the show, we talked about how the women's match was in the death spot because it was after the stadium stampede. That's when people were going to go to the bathroom or just mill around, or how do you recover from a match like that? Is it even a match? How do you recover from that? What's a bigger death spot, that or the acclaimed House of Black being the last match before the main event? Um, I don't know. On a show like this, they were kind of tied because it's so fucking long. You've got time for two death spots. And finally, the main event, MJF versus Adam Cole, four and a half stars. Oh, come on. Now, the thing of all the entire show that everybody wanted to see, and at least they made something out of it, it was all, as we said, drama and showbiz, but besides Punk and Joe and FTR and the Bucks, because FTR made them watchable, there wasn't really another legitimate fucking wrestling match on the show and everything else pretty much sucked. So Jericho well, Osprey was all right. I thought that was good. Well, all right. It was okay. Old Ostrich got him through it. But, but listen, good Lord. You would think this is one of the greatest shows of all time. Out of the nine matches on the main card, six of them got over four stars. Yes. Which is, again, ridiculous. What is he looking at? And whose feelings doesn't he want to hurt? And how, at this point, there are people that are still, we're discussing this because there are people that still discuss this. And these wrestlers, they just love it when they get four stars and above. But how can he keep any credibility at this point? We're looking at the same shit. We see the plumber has no clothes. And boy, is that a disgusting sight. Well, that was the uh, star ratings. Dave Meltzer, the Wrestling Observer Newsletter star ratings for AEW All In London. And uh, speaking of Moxley and speaking of AEW, Jim, we have the ratings. These probably won't be as as, uh, gracious and kind as Dave's were. These are from the Nielsen people, right? I believe that is who uh, is still doing these. That's right. Nielsen's ratings for AEW Dynamite August 30th on TBS. Art Nielsen and his brother Stan, right? Not those Nielsens. This one, <laughs> not this one. This show, this dynamite was this watched one over was, here. This one was watched by eight hundred and seventy-one thousand viewers. <laughs> the same fucking people every week. It's becoming a running it, joke. It is the same number every. What are the? Does it have the last? Do you have the column of the last five or six numbers or whatever? I would have to uh well don't don't don't, don't do any work but last week last week the total viewership was 870,000 viewers. So okay so they're they're growing by leaps and bounds. 870 to 871 where where did they start and where did the exodus begin this week? These are the ratings as compiled by WrestleNomics. Quarter 1 8 to 8 15 p.m. John Moxley versus Commander with Picture in Picture, 957,000 viewers. Wow. Okay. And by the way, I have clarified the Big Bang Theory apparently is no longer doing the big numbers that it was doing, what, a year or two years ago or whenever the fuck it was, where they'd start with over a million people. Apparently, even the Big Bangers have seen those reruns enough times that the the bloom is off the rose so that's why they're starting but still 957,000 ain't a bad number to start with 
but from their average, I have a feeling it won't last. Quarter 2, 8.15 8.30 p.m., the Orange Cassidy backstage promo, <clears throat> the Young Bucks FTR Bullet Club Gold backstage angle, the Tony Storm backstage promo, and Chris Jericho's live promo, the beginning of it, 913,000 viewers. So, as we suspected, immediately 44,000 people saw Plummer and Commander and said, all right, they're going to do this again. Quarter 3, 8.30 to 8.45 p.m., the continuation of Chris Jericho's promo, which is a confrontation with Sammy Guevara of sorts, the John Moxley and, what are their names? Uh, I was going to say Bullet Club. Uh, Claudio and, uh, yeah, Blackpools. The BBC. Their promo backstage, as well as Eddie Kingston versus Wheeler Yuta with picture-in-picture, 925,000 viewers. That is surprising that people would come back for anything that you just mentioned. But, so they picked up 12 back. I think the Jericho Sammy thing may have gotten some people into it, but... At least it was in the ring. That's right. <laughs> At least it wasn't just shit going on in the back. Quarter 4, 8.45 to 9 p.m., the continuation of Kingston versus Yuta, the MJF Adam Cole backstage locker room promo, an ad break, Sammy Guevara and Don Callis' backstage confrontation, and the beginning of Adam Cole having a confrontation with Roddy Strong, Mike Bennett, and Matt Taven. 909,000 viewers. And the 12,000 they picked up and three more thousand said fuck it. Quarter five, the big nine o'clock hour, nine to nine fifteen p.m. Continuation of Adam Cole's confrontation with Strong, Bennett, and Taven. Penta El Zero Miedo's backstage promo. Emmy Sakura, <laughs> Marina Shafir, and Nyla Rose versus Britt Baker, Hikaru Shida, and Chris Statlander. Ding, ding, ding. I think we found the cliff. With picture in picture, 910,000 viewers. What? Well, again, it's the, continua it's the continuation of the Adam Cole angle. All right, okay, I see. So they stayed to see what the fuck that was all about. And then they saw the girls. So what happens next? Quarter 6, 9.15 to 9.30 p.m. The continuation of Sakura, Shafir, and Rose versus Baker, Sheeta, and Statlander. The post-match with Ruby Soho. The Kanosuke Takeshka Don Callis backstage promo. An ad break. And the beginning, is it the beginning or the whole thing? The whole thing of the acclaimed and Billy Gunn's ribbon-cutting ceremony for their new scissor-themed championship belts. 828,000 viewers. Okay, so they, uh, that's 72, 82,000 decided that women's six-man was not to be tolerated. Well, not women's six-man, six-woman. Oh, that's right. Well, the six men champions and their women. You get it, well, quarter seven, nine thirty to nine forty-five p.m. The entrances with picture in picture for Orange Cassidy versus Penta El Zero Miedo, and then there was an ad break. Seven hundred and sixty-three thousand viewers. Okay, now it makes sense because let's face it, they got a gift that they were able to stay above 900,000 people for this rotten, stinking, smelly program that they aired for an entire hour before people smartened up that this is all we're going to get. We ain't going to get nothing else but this. And then in the 
final hour, they started at 910,000, went to 828,000, went to 763,000. And now that they've got a good whiff of pockets, where did they go in the last quarter? The final quarter, plus there's an overrun. 9.45 to 10 p.m., Orange Cassidy versus Penta El Zero Miedo with Picture in Picture and Orange Cassidy's live promo. He did a promo? Oh, yeah. Oh, good Lord. 769,000 viewers with an overrun of 784 for the one minute of John Moxley and Orange Cassidy squaring off. Yeah, we don't buy that. Uh, I can't believe that it didn't drop in the final quarter, but I guess maybe somebody was tuning in thinking, certainly to God, this is not the main event. There's going to be something else going on. You know, with WrestleNomics, when they do the uh, ratings, they have a bar that shows the 90-day trend. And it's starting to show a little bit more effect each time you see it for the big drop-off that happens at 9.15. And it goes to the end of the show. I mean, this is the last... I mean, we said they've been having around the same number the last few weeks. They've been having the same drop-off. Yeah. Around that period of time, right after... 200,000. Yeah. This was... Well, this was... Hold on. This was only 188,000. Last week, it was 200-something thousand. But that's, uh, yeah, they start with a, an audience they're handed, and those people slowly leave. Not, uh, I will give them credit for this. Over the last three weeks or so, they've kept up the first hour remarkably well for what's been presented. And maybe, like you said, that's they're waiting. Once they determine what MJF and Adam Cole's involvement is going to be, then they're, they're done. But every week they lose between 20 and 25% of the audience they start with by the end of the program, which is an anomaly from every other wrestling program that we're aware of, right? Even Collision. It's not doing as, as well on Saturday night, but they keep the audience they get to begin with. Yeah, they keep the audience that's there. You know, the issue, too, is with this women's six-person match, the trios match, I guess it was The six-man six women's match? The six-man women's match. There's no way you could write that on paper and not think that would cause people to say, you know, I've seen enough, I'll turn the channel. There's lots of but baseball he, on. There's lots of other things that... He wrote down Moxley versus Commander, and he wrote down Pockets versus Penthouse and didn't think the same thing. How about the fact that the international champion had to defeat Penta to get the opportunity to defend his championship against Moxley? <laughs> Isn't that kind of backwards booking? No, they they think it's it's a uh, it's a, uh, a a privilege to get in the ring with the plumber, because then they're going to look so much better. Because even pockets next to the plumber looks like a human being. Those were the uh, AEW Dynamite ratings for this past week. I have here uh, WWE just put out new retro figures. For a four set here, Jerry the King Lawler, Paul Barrow, The Undertaker, and Vader. By Mattel, excuse me. I'd like you to guess, do you know what their finishing maneuvers are? Oh, good lord. So wait a minute, now, their finishing maneuvers are listed on the figure box? Or? Well, not, not necessarily their finishing maneuver, but the maneuver that the figure does, I guess. Oh, the figure does a move. Each figure has some sort of action where you can... What if the other figure doesn't want to cooperate? They have no choice, depending on what action the first figure can do. The Vader figure, you can kind of pull him back and he'll move forward and belly bop slash cocoa butt you. I'm not exactly sure what he's supposed to be doing. Jerry Lawler, 
has a fist. Fist drop? You, well, you can pull his fist back and he'll just punch you right in the face. Okay. Uh, the Undertaker lifts his hands up and down. <laughs> so technically, well, what, he can what lift... If, what? I was about to say, what, what does Paul Bearer do? Paul Bearer doesn't have a move. Well, he has his hands also go up and down, but he has an urn in his hand, so he can bop you over the head with the urn. He can hit you with the urn. Yeah. Undertaker only gets his hands to go up and down. He doesn't get to punch anybody or belly bump them or... What do you think Vader's superstar action is called? The Vader bomb. Oh, you would think so, right? Well, I would think so. The Vaderizer. Oh, good Lord. <sighs> what was Jerry Lawler's punch known as? Or what would you call it? The the punch? <laughs> the big right hand? The crown pound. Oh, good lord. What is it when Paul Bearer hits you with the urn? Um, an urn burn? That's good. The cremation crush. Oh, good lord. And finally, the Undertaker, when he lifts his hands up and puts them back down. The, the Undertaker prayer? The dead man drop. <laughs> Because he's going to drop you. You know, they used to do that all the time. I would see in TNA, like they they would make up, you know, quotes. Sometimes Ross Foreman, he, he was the guy doing some of them. And he would get like guys to fill out legitimate shit and everything. But I've seen some trading cards where they'll just make up quotes and make up moves for guys. And, you know, the action figures when they started coming out years ago. It, not only would they put in like a toilet seat or whatever, just because they saw a guy on TV in a hardcore match. So his forever, his figure is packaged with a fucking disembodied toilet seat. And it's just all these people that work for these companies that not only don't know anything about wrestling, but don't have the respect enough to fucking ask. And so what would this legitimate be? So all the fans look at shit and go, well, fuck, none of that's right. They don't say this. They don't do this. You know, whatever. But it, it always drove me crazy. That ain't going to happen from Cornette's Collectibles by Cracky. We still have listeners who send us questions about or straight up images from old PWIs or whatever they may be, interviews with Jim Cornette. And they always ask, was this actually him? Just because you actually had an involvement with the magazines and you were super involved in everything you did. Any of the interviews or quotes that were ever used in any of the aftermags, did any of them actually come from you? I don't want to say a blanket never, because then I would be proven wrong if there was a caption or a quote or, you know, names making news or whatever his column used to be. But most of the feature interviews were, were made up, but they were made up within the flavor of the story, hopefully that we were telling on television or something that, cause that's what Stanley Weston before Bill after came along with London publishing the, the uh, wrestling illustrated in the sixties and what magazine was Stanley Weston? He went wrestling review for a while, he right? He started wrestling review, started wrestling review. And he had gotten heat in the business. Bill after told me because he would just write these sensationalistic stories. And he was a, you know, so-and-so was stepping out on the town with hot women or whatever. And the guy's married. He's like, what the fuck? I can't remember the examples, but 
he had made sensationalistic shit up and put it in the magazines to the point where a lot of the boys didn't want anything to do with the company that he was involved in. You couldn't and win. In, you couldn't win, could you? Don't write anything that really is happening. Also, don't make up anything. Yeah, well, don't make up, you know, stuff in bad taste, right? And I think, because he was big on the, especially in the early 60s, the sensationalistic headlines, right? And so when Bill came along, he kind of got the trust back of the guys. So he would, they would obviously make stuff up, make up quotes, make up interviews, but it would be either within the, talking about the stuff we were talking about on television or within the flavor of what we were doing on TV. And most of the guys didn't mind that. They just wanted to be in the magazines because that was the only way pre-cable and pre-home video that that guys got known in other territories before they would go there is to be in the magazines. But then there was always some issue. Remember the the night a midget beat Andre the Giant? And well, Vince, who was that sorry son of a bitchin' midget? Well, it was Jerry Lawler. That was Terry Funk. People may not know what you're talking about. Yeah, it, it, well, I, I thought the story was famous enough, but they had a match between Lawler and Andre, a single match, in Louisville here, April 5th, 1977. I was at ringside and shot pictures. But so was Mike Shields, who at the time was one the one doing the Tennessee photography for Bill, because I just got started, a, a young, fresh-faced kid. And the, the finish was a DQ on Lawler. Phil Hickerson and Dennis Condry ran in and got the DQ, and then... Andre and, and a couple of the baby faces made a big comeback. But when they got the pictures, they made up the story that somehow Andre got counted out of the ring. So in effect, Lawler beat Andre, and the title of the story was, you know, Midget Beats Andre the Giant. Even Lawler's six feet tall, but, you know, the sensationalistic, right? And at the NWA convention that year, Vince Sr. was upset, and he held up a copy of the magazine because he was talking about, we can't be having publicity like this on Andre the Giant. Look at this headline, Midget Beats Andre the Giant. And fucking Terry Funk in the back of the room, he knew who it was. He knew what was going on. He said, well, Vince, who was that sorry son of a bitchin' midget that beat Andre? <laughs> and there's... And I think Lawler was there, right? I know Jerry Jarrett was there. They both had their heads down in the fucking back row. And, and that was after, another year that Lawler didn't get the NWA title. Yes, it certainly <laughs> was. But after got some heat from that, too. And that, so he had to gear that back. He had to treat Andre with kid gloves. You ever hear the story that after got heat because maybe Wrestling Review, not Wrestling Review, but Sports Review Wrestling, one of those magazines had an article that was, in kayfabe, slightly critical of David Von Erich, and it came out right when David died and Fritz was upset. Ooh, I think I remember something about that. Yeah, and after yeah, was because, a little worried about it, because yeah. it was right when everything was going down and Fritz was livid, apparently. But see, back in those days, we've talked about the production deadline. You... It, to, from printing and distribution to where it's on the stands and able to buy, uh, it would take three months from the time they started laying the magazine out till people actually had it. Comic books were the same thing back in those days. And so that's why the cover dates were always ahead of when they were actually put together and printed. So the news was always a couple months behind. 
One last thing on this. I have an article here that a listener, AJ from SJ, sent in from WWE Magazine Memories by Jim Cornette. Did you actually write this? I don't know. I'll read it to you. It was my first WrestleMania. The event was in Madison Square Garden. The arena called the Mecca of Professional Wrestling and the place where it all began. It was the 10th edition of WrestleMania, which made it even more special. And I was managing the WWF champion, Yokozuna. It's the kind of night that could be the pinnacle of your career. And if it all ended the next day, I would have died happy. This doesn't sound like me. I was the American spokesman for Yoko, a monster of a man we called a former sumo wrestler. He was so important that he also had a Japanese manager, Mr. Fuji. I don't know. Where is this from? WWF Magazine. What is the date? I don't have a date on it, but uh, it has the uh, Attitude Errors logo as opposed to the, uh, the fun-loving one. Okay, yeah, in that case, this sounds like either... Shitstain or one of his minions. Shitstain was writing things as Jim Cornette. Well, I, I I don't know. I didn't know this existed. Do your I'm hearing you read it to me. At the time, Lex Luger and Brett the Hitman Hart were both number one contenders, and the WWF announced that each would get a title shot at WrestleMania 10. The atmosphere in Madison Square Garden was electric when I came to the ring with Yokozuna and Fuji, <laughs> and we fed off the people's energy. To make things more interesting. Another top contender, Mr. Perfect, was the special referee. When Luger knocked out Yokozuna with a forearm, I just couldn't stand there and let the title change hands. So I jumped on the apron, and Luger slingshotted me into the ring. I had on this Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Heart Club Band outfit, gold sequin pants, and a black shiny captain's hat. There was no hat. It was it was no hat on that outfit. There was no black shiny captain's hat. No. <laughs> what a throwback to the early days of Jim Cornette. <laughs> that was my hair I used to have back then. Fuji got involved in the match too. Mr. Perfect had a tough time keeping order. And that was good for us because truthfully, Luger had Yokozuna pinned. Lex was pretty steamed that the ref didn't see it. So he shoved Mr. Perfect and got himself disqualified. Luger really felt he'd been screwed out of the title, especially later when Brett beat Yoko for the championship in the main event. I have to admit, though, that I was in a pretty good mood when the show was over. (laughs) I knew people were going to be talking about this one for a long time. And since we're talking about it now, I guess I was right. Yeah, by so Jim I, would, I would I would be writing an article where I felt really good after my guy lost the WWF championship at WrestleMania in Madison Square Garden because they'd be talking about it. Good Lord, I have no idea which one of the Nimrods in that department ghosted that fucking piece right there. But if I'd have seen it, I would have sued. All right, Jim. Well, let's get you in a happy mood before we wrap things up. I have here some programs. Let's get to a couple of these. We'll play a little guest the program. How's that sound to you? All righty. Finish up strong. All right. Well, I'll try. I got a whole lot here. Where do I start? Okay, I'll start with this one. All right. This first program, Jim. The opening bout. Haystack Muldoon versus Larry Simon. 
Oh. Larry okay. Simon of New Jersey. Haystack Muldoon, it just says farmer. <laughs> they listed his occupation rather than his hometown. Jose Romero versus Sonny Fargo. Oh, okay. Best two out of three falls. The Bavarian Boys versus Jerry Grant. Ru- Rude, Rudy and Hans? I do not know for was sure. It? I couldn't okay, tell. You. I think that was their name. Okay, Bavarian Boys versus versus Jerry Graham, Doctor Jerry Graham, and Jackie Fargo. Luther Lindsay versus Pat Kelly. Ooh, that's odd. Two out of three fall tag team match. Hans Schmidt and Red Groupie or Group. I don't know uh, Red. Sorry to say. Versus Tony Marino. And Eugene Marin. Eugenio. It says Eugene, for the record. Well, they couldn't spell it right. Two out of three falls, tag team match. Miguel Perez and Ricky Starr versus Pompero Furpo and the Rebel from Alabama. And the main event... Who, who was that? Does not have a picture of that man on here. I think I, sh- I should know that, but I don't. And the main event. The main event to a finish. Argentina Rocca versus Bruno San Martino. All righty, then. I'm just going to. Uh, I'm going to say, is this Madison Square Garden? It is Madison Square Garden. Okay, now I'm going to get the year. Because Sonny Fargo is Roughhouse Fargo, as uh, as we know, and Jackie being in a tag with Jerry Graham against the Bavarian boy Bavarian boys indicates this is after the Don Fargo years. It's Larry Simon is of course a young Professor Boris Malenko. Haystack Muldoon was the alternate to Haystack Calhoun, uh, if you couldn't get him. Pat Kelly of the Kelly Twins that uh, was in the wreck with Adrian Adonis. Luther Lindsay, the great African-American shooter that Stu Hart said was the toughest guy that he ever was in the ring with and died of a heart attack in the ring. Who did Red Group turn into? God damn it. He changed his name and became more known as well. Hans Schmidt, of course, one of the biggest heels of the entire wrestling business during the network days of the early 50s. Miguel Perez and Ricky Starr against Pampiro Furpo and the Rebel and Rocca and Bruno is why, as soon as you got to Miguel Perez and Ricky Starr, I knew it was the garden. Rocca and Bruno puts it at. 1962, because that was a rare babyface match, but they knew they were going to go with Bruno, and they knew that they wanted to, in some way, at least pass the torch. I don't know whether they got Rocca to do a complete full job, but uh, that's got to be fall, winter, 1962? Monday, Madison Square Garden. Monday, October 24th, 1960. Oh, what? This is when Pfeffer got back control of the garden. God damn it. And Bruno was on the outs with Vince Sr. 
That's right. That's because that explains the Fargo's coming back, even though Don wasn't available, Pfeffer brought Sonny back. So 1960. Haystack Muldoon. I have a stack of original unsold Haystack Muldoon 8x10s. <laughs> I don't know what I'll ever do with them, but I have them. He, he, and he had a round kind of, he was bald-headed, right? Yes. It had a round kind of head. He didn't have the classic country boy look of Haystack's Calhoun. All right, I was two years off. Son of a bitch. Well, you got the season. At least you got that. The next card here, Jim. Eh, this is kind of the same era. Maybe I shouldn't do this one next. Let me move this. All right, I'll go with an easy one. Jose Luis Rivera versus Pete Doherty. <laughs> Terry Daniels versus Tiger Chung Lee. Brian Blair versus Mr. Fuji. Tony Garia versus Bulldog Buzz Sawyer. Mm. Salvatore Bolomo versus George the Animal Steel. Ivan Putsky versus Roddy Piper. And finally, the main event, an eight-man elimination tag team match. The Iron Sheik, Dr. D. David Schultz, Cowboy Bob Orton to take all the bumps, <laughs> and Greg the Hammer Valentine versus Sergeant Slaughter, Bob Backlund, Rocky Johnson, and Chief J. Strongbow. Holy shit, what a card. <clears throat> that is uh, obviously the WWF, and that is... As far as location, I mean, it. it's not the garden, I don't think. I think it would be, I'm not going to say, I'm still keeping my finger on the checker. It would be somewhere like a Philly or a Boston or one of the bigger towns, but not the garden. And again, it would almost have to be with Buzz Sawyer. He was briefly there. But with Rocky Johnson still there, Chief J. Strongbow still in the ring, Backland, it has to be 84 during the initial expansion, right? Because you've got Belomo is still there, but Piper has come in. 84 at some point, or maybe early 85 at the latest. Help me. It is the World Wrestling Federation on tour. In Providence, Rhode Island, at the Providence Civic Center. Okay. Tuesday, June 26, 1984. There you go. So a few interesting things. Also, one of the last Bob Backlund shows. Yeah, because he was gone pretty, pretty soon after that. And Strongbow was retired by the end of the year, right? From in-ring? That's right. And Buzz Sawyer lasted weeks. Weeks. But at the same point, you had a little of the old... WWF in Jose Luis Rivera, Pete Doherty, the Duke of Dorchester, and then you had Putsky and Gurria and Putsky, but then you also had Piper and you had Blair and, you know, Orton and, and uh, Schultz and some of the guys that he snagged on the initial uh, expansion. So it was kind of the blending of the old and the new. All right, Jim, this next program here. Uh, which is the first match? Okay, special added attraction, man versus bear. 
Ox Baker versus the Mighty Samson. This match will follow the main event. Uh, program is that's in ca- that's in case the that's in case the bear shits in the ring. The Great Fuji versus the Magnificent Zulu. Oh my God! <laughs> and Fuji was like five foot eight, and Zulu was six foot eight. In a tournament match, the Missouri Mauler versus Charlie Cook. Ooh. In a tag team match, Lord Jonathan Boyd and Sir Norman Charles versus Angelo and Lanny Poffo. In another tournament match, the Battle of the Mongols, <laughs> Bolo Mongol versus El Mongol. <laughs> There will be an intermission, and then a U.S. Where, where, where Ann Gunkel will draw the lucky number. <laughs> oh, very good. A U.S. heavyweight championship match. The champion, Ray Candy, versus Crusher Verdue. Good Lord. In a tag team match, Jerry and Luke Graham versus Assassin Number 2 and Carlos Colon. Jesus. There will be another intermission. And the main event, Texas Deathmatch. Ring surrounded with wire cage. Rock Hunter versus Assassin Number One, Tom Renesto. Falls do not count. Holy moly. <clears throat> Where do we begin? Um, <laughs> obviously, Ox Baker and the Bear. Um, it was, uh, I'd never heard of Samson. I've seen Ginger. I've seen Gentleman Ben. Saw a variety of the bears. Never saw Samson. Okay, Mr. Fuji or the great Fuji versus Zulu. But was that the real Mr. Fuji now that I know where this was? I'm looking through this for any photos. Uh, here's uh, El Mongo welcomes you to Maria's Mexican restaurant. That was a big landmark down there. Um, Here's the thing. It's an Ann Gunkel promotion. Uh, when she the war in Atlanta, when she was running all South wrestling. And you can tell because like El Mongol in the 60s was one of the biggest names in Atlanta wrestling. And he started as a heel, but then became a babyface and ended up opening a restaurant after he retired and living in Atlanta. And he came back to work for her because he was a fucking name. And you got Jerry and Luke Graham. Luke was from Georgia. But Jerry Graham, getting a spot at this period of time, they were, because again, Jerry in the 50s was a huge name in Atlanta. They were doing whatever they could. Um, um, Luke Graham had just been unmasked. He had been the mighty Yankee, but assassin number two unmasked him. And there you go. And the assassins who had gone with Ann Gunkel, number one was Tom Renesto. Number two was Jody Hamilton, but we didn't know that yet. Tom Renesto had unmasked because he took the job as Booker. Rock Hunter was a famous manager of the 70s. Um, Ray Candy was a, a black baby face that was big in Atlanta at the time. Crusher Verdue was this short squat like Five foot eight, three hundred pound fucking guy with his giant chest that actually once sold out Madison Square Garden against Bruno, but that was maybe his crowning achievement. I think I could have sold out Madison Square Garden against Bruno in that run. Boyd and Charles, the Royal Kangaroos, the Missouri Mauler is the brother of Jody Hamilton, Larry Hamilton. 
Charlie Cook was a guy who I believe had a flirtation, or at least we were told that, with the National Football League and was another uh, black baby face that worked in the South quite a lot in the 70s. Um, because of this had to be in the dying days with Angelo and Lanny on the card as a team, this has got to be late all South. It's got to be 1974, doesn't it? Did she make it to early 75? This is, she did not make it to 75. This is Tuesday, July 9th, 1974, the Atlanta City Auditorium. There you go. And with cards like that, a lot of mouths to feed, but I'm not sure how many people would have paid to see half these fucking matches. Hey, a few quick notes from the program here. Here's a note from Ann Gunkel. Matt Chat by promoter Ann Gunkel. Sorry I haven't written anything in a long time, but I've been very busy going around the country looking for and booking some of the nation's top wrestlers to appear here in the near future. Last week, here at the auditorium, and this is about the unmasking that I mentioned, also, I'm really impressed by the sensational young Carlos Colon. <laughs> he, he wasn't young by that point. He'd already been wrestling for 15 years, probably, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Well, he's in his mid-30s. He might was young back then. He might just be a surprise entry into the Georgia Heavyweight Championship battle, but we will wait and see as there are many more matches and lots of good wrestlers to eliminate. And then also in here, the announcer, Ed Caprol, timekeeper, Tom Renesto Jr., publicity, Charlie Smith. Good old Charlie Smith. All-Star Championship Wrestling on TV for July and August. It has the TV schedule, but with an asterisk. Possibility of Braves game, extra innings run over. Some things never changed. Uh, Studio Wrestling Channel 17, 1018 West Petrie Street, admission free. Get free tickets from Ed Caprol at ringside, 2 p.m. to 3 p.m. every Saturday. Watch on TV. Tune in Channel 17, 7 p.m. to 8 p.m. every Saturday night. And they taped it. Was it right before or right after the Georgia Championship Wrestling crew taped their show? Yes, one or the other, either before or after. They they would they use the same ring. And the one company's guys would have to come in, do their show, and then leave, and the other company's guys come in, do their show, and leave. Well, that was a rather brief guess the program, but there it is, and we've gone a long time, and we've done a lot of audio this week, one of the longest podcasts anyone's ever listened to. Jim, one song before we get out of here. How's that sound? That sounds good to me. Play that funky music, white boy. All right. Well, we didn't have to bring race into this. I don't really like that. I can. Well, take it up with Wild Cherry. All right. Well, let's get this song here. This is not Wild Cherry, Jim. This is someone we've heard from before. I am the Pelican, London, UK. Here is an original drive-through theme song. Everything was written, played, mixed, and mastered by myself. Yeah. Let's give it a shot. Welcome to Corny's Drive-Thru, another week of wrestling's done. Time to review all that they do and try to make it fun. Jim and Brian are always signed at the modern flipping Joe. Someone hit him hard till Tracy stars on any of these shows. You think there's too much wrestling to cover every show. But they hop on into the time machine with a great big tally ho. They'll see it all, they'll take the falls, and for you the time is saved. And I guarantee more honesty than Dagum Uncle Dave. Well, if you got questions that you'd like to ask to the greatest wrestling mind, email them to 
Facebook group online. This is the session for an education on wrestling through and through. And if you got legal problems, we know how to solve them. Call up Stephen P. New. Well, we'll talk old school wrestling for this much you can appraise. As Jim regales us with many tales of the territory days. Great Brian Lass has programs past that Jim will have to guess. And if a Twitter fight breaks out overnight, Jim does what he does best. So if you're down with Corny, he salutes you with his cry. Oh. And if you don't salute, he don't give a hoot. So thank, thank you, fuck, fuck you, you, bye. <laughs> Good. Wow. Very, very good. Hold on. There's I am the Pelican. What a return. Wow. Excellent. Put an asterisk on that one, Brian. Put that over to the side. We got to use that again sometime. You know, there's this one, that one that the ex-bombers sent in, people really reacted to, and that was really catchy. got stuck in my head. That was the one that was like an old theme song. Probably have to take out the part where he called Colin Thompson a cocksucker at the end. <laughs> but the rest of it was pretty good and was probably usable as a theme. You know, sometimes the only problem is when someone wants to have the opening song, you kind of have to give us a little bit of a tale to talk over. Ah, yeah, the tale, because the tale needs to be told. Yeah, because if it like, ends right when the words end, then it's like not even having a theme song. Then it's just like, oh, we're here abruptly again. Well, see, now you're just tearing down Pelican's work here. No, he I, did, such a, did such a great job. That we may actually be able to use his tale, but I Am the Pelican did another great job there. Well, I'll, I'll tell you what. Tune in every week to hear the Pelican's tale. Someone stole my marimba, my favorite one. Good. No, it seems good. that my money was well spent with that second story, man. No, I got my other one here with more notes. With that, the uh, drive-thru is closed. Ah. All right, where are we? We're ending the show. Listen, we've done so many shows. We're on Twitter at the Jim Cornette. Great Brian Lass. Go through the archives, patreon.com slash Cornette. The official Jim Cornette YouTube channel. Subscribe, Travis Heckle's artwork. It's the best. Share it from there. Uh, Cornette's collectibles at jimcornette.com. Get the figures. They're probably sold out already, but you can go try by the time you hear this. What else? Uh... 605 Super Podcast. The Rubbish Ship! 605pod.com. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, you know what that means. It's time to wrap up the show and get into the time machine and ride to the experience. So for Jim Cornette, I'm the great Brian Last. Tally-ho! Watch that meteor! <laughs> <laughs>